Hey everybody, Magnus here. Uh, basically, just a little quick note before we get into this week's uh, show. I wanted to let you guys know that this is a continuation of last week's discussion about All-Star Superman. John M. Wilson, host of the New 52 Adventures of Superman podcast, was kind enough to not only agree to talk about All-Star Superman with me, but he was, in, he was an even better sport about it in terms of uh, splitting his time up and coming back uh, for uh, this, this this second outing, right? What he originally agreed to was two hours total. What he actually participated in amounts to a total of something like six and a half hours or something like that. It's just a, it's a hell of a long time. So, number one, I'd like to thank John for going above and beyond what he and I originally agreed to. Because he didn't really have to do that, guys. He could have just told me, you know, piss off. I gave you my two hours. We're done. No, he didn't do that. All right. So um, he was a really good sport about it. And, you know, he had a lot of uh, engaging insights and stuff that I had never noticed before to say about All-Star Superman. So obviously I'm grateful for that. All right. So thanks a lot, John. Again, I really appreciate you taking the time. So much more time than you actually uh, agreed to do in the first place. Uh, you know, to help me out with this episode, right? So that's the first thing. But uh, the second thing, for you listeners, um, basically what happened was there was a little bit of a tape delay, shall we say, uh, a little bit of a uh, of a delay in recording, right? As he and I were, were talking along with each other and just going through uh, this the second half of All Star Superman, what happened was there was a uh, a lag with uh, Skype. So I would say something. And then John would say something. Doesn't last very long. He and I eventually, you know, got everything ironed out. And after that, we're golden. But there are points in this show where there's a little bit of a delay between the time that I say something. And then John says something. Make sense? So just something to be aware of. Yes, I, I'm sure I could have fixed that, you know, in, when I was editing this episode together. But, I mean, that's a shitload of work, and honestly, I just didn't feel like doing it. So, anyway, I figured you guys, you can all live with this mild delay. Like I said, it, it's not all that drastic in the first place. And in the second place, it really doesn't last all that long either. I think it's only in there for like 30, 40 minutes, something like that, an hour tops. And out of three hours, I mean, come on, you know, that's, you'll deal, you know. So, anyway, just want to raise awareness about that, let you know what's going on, and so, otherwise, I think that's about it. Don't really have too much else in the way of uh, caveats and disclaimers and warnings and all this kind of, all that stuff, so, that's basically it. On with the show, this is it. Please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. <laughs> Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
Hello, and welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm not quite as sick as I was last week, but I guess apart from that, as I've been saying all through this series, Superman is my favorite character in all of fiction. Top of the list. Greatest ever. And because of that, I've been talking a lot about Superman lately. But what I usually do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows because, well, let's face it, this really isn't an index type of podcast, and, and I really don't focus on just one character, but you wouldn't know that from listening to my shows lately because, like I said, it's nothing but Superman right now. And right now, I'm finishing off a mega series celebrating Superman. My last bunch of episodes have been about lots and lots of Superman comics. And this is pretty much the end of it right now, in fact. We're very close to the end. Uh, it's just about finished up. And for clarity's sake, I should say that I've done a lot of these six-episode miniseries in the past that are devoted to, I don't know, one specific topic or idea or theme, storyline, just whatever. And so this isn't really a totally new thing, but the Superman thing that I'm going through right now is probably the most ambitious thing I've ever attempted. And let me just say, I'm burned the hell out too, because, I mean, I know how awesome this mega series has been, and I know how all of you uh, have to constantly redefine your definition of the word epic after every single episode, but I gotta tell you, it's been really exhausting to work my way through all this stuff, but of all characters, Superman's worth it, you know? Now, it's totally reasonable to ask why I'm going to all this trouble for Superman right now. And I'd have thought it was obvious, but in case it's not, 2014 is a supremely important milestone in Superman's history because this year, Superman is celebrating his 76th anniversary. So because of that, my opinion is that there's no better way to spend my time in 2014 than talking all about Superman. Because, I mean, people, just think about it. 76 years. I mean, that's unprecedented. And so it made, it made sense to me, it seemed logical, to spend at least a little bit of time during 2014 celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. Do you guys understand what I'm saying here? Just in case some of you are missing the point, allow me to repeat it. There's no better way to spend the year of 2014. You understand? And there's no better character than to wax fanboy about how frickin' awesome Superman is. And it's worth celebrating the fact that this year is Superman's 76th anniversary. So anyway... That's enough of that. Now, I've actually got a few more things here in my notes, but it, re but I, it occurs to me now I probably need to just cut to the chase and, and reintroduce my co-host for this episode. This is the New 52 Adventures of Superman host. You are the – are you the co-host or host? Uh, I am currently the uh, the only host, so yes, I am I'm the host of that show. Um, although I've had some guests on lately, like uh, our mutual good friend, Mr. Bailey. Oh, I see. Okay, so New Fifty Two Adventures of Superman 
podcast host, Mr. John M. Wilson, is rejoining me this week so that we can conclude our coverage and discussion about All-Star Superman. Welcome back, sir. It's great, it's great to talk to you. Hello, hello. Applause, applause. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate you being back. Well, hey, always happy to have you back because I've noticed that every single time that you know you and I hang out and uh, talk about these uh, talk about these comics, we always have a lot of fun. And so I always like having you on the uh, on uh, the show. It's just it's it's good. I like it. I like it a lot. And as far as um, ways to celebrate and observe 2014, um, there are two weekly series being put out by DC right now, and the one I'm reading does not have the word eternal in the name. Just to say. Okay. Well, you're talking to sort of a new 52 numbnuts right now. Oh, there's so. a Batman Eternal series going on right now. Oh, there is. All right. Yes. Okay. But you don't you, you don't you don't, you know. You don't have to know that because it's over there in New 52 land. Ah. <laughs> okay, cool. Fair enough. Well, all the same. Uh welcome back to the show. Glad to have you now. Last week we went on at great length, I might add, about all things All-Star Superman, at least from issues number one to six. And in fact, it's just over three hours worth of stuff there, and we could only reach the halfway point. And, you know, just to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, the original idea I had for that show was that, oh yeah, sure, Wilson and I do, we can knock out all 12 of the, uh, all 12 issues of that series. We could do that in one go. I'd be surprised if it takes us two hours there's no way we can't make it well three hours into the thing and we only reached the halfway point so you tell me you know uh i don't know i guess it wasn't possible so anyway john has graciously uh, agreed to uh come back this week so that we can finish everything off uh, last week we finished um our discussion with all-star superman number six and so this week because we do have a mathematical system that's based on 10. So after the number six must necessarily come the number seven. Unless we're on Bizarro World or something. And then I guess maybe seven doesn't necessarily have to follow six. But this is the real world. And so seven follows six. That's just the way that things are. And so Most of the time. Yeah, well, yeah, most of the time. So to get into the seventh issue uh, basically kicks off with... Honestly, I was uh, going through this, and I and it's maybe it's just a maybe I don't know. It, it, when I re, when I sat down to reread All Star Superman uh, for this little uh, see, apparently this duology of shows that we're doing here, I picked up uh, my trade paperbacks, at the two of them, and just went into it. Right, reread everything, and this had been probably the first time in like three or four years that I'd read this story, right. And so what ended up happening, I, I, it's hard to guess, but this very first page that has, uh, I don't know, shit going down with that spaceship or something, I must have accidentally skipped this because it's almost like I've never seen this page before. I, I guess I just flipped over to what is page two in issue number seven. It's Superman and the Sun Eater, and they're just hanging around in space. And looks like they're playing grab ass with each other or something like that. And that's just this is where what... Superman is setting him free. Yep. Well, right, but it it just sounds funnier though if you say it looks like they're playing grab ass. <laughs> oh, I I I forget. There 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 are funny things. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, anyways, so this first page, I hate to say it, but I've kind of got to plead ignorance here because 
it was almost like looking at a brand new page. I was like, where the hell did this come from? I have no idea what I'm looking at. So, and that was just this very moment. So if you heard me bumble around there for just a minute, that was me getting thrown completely for a loop. So uh, that must be riveting to listen to. But anyway, basically shit goes down with this spaceship uh, out in, well, space. And meanwhile, Superman and the Sun Eater are playing grab ass with each other as Superman sets the Sun Eater free. And Superman's on his way back to Earth when he gets attacked by these giant green booger-colored monsters. And before before we even know what's going on, He's been ambushed, and he's about to crash into the cube-shaped uh, Bizarro homeworld. And... Now, go ahead. I just... I'll, I'll, I'll just put it all out front. To me, the Bizarro world two chapters are the low point of the All-Star Superman saga for me. Mm-hmm. So not, not, not to start us out on a low note or anything, but just, you know, to be, to be um, up front. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but... It seems to me like they're saying that the Bizarro world is like a life form or something, and I don't really know exactly what's going on. In fact, this first page with like the big purple brick thing that's eating some – I don't really know what's going on here. I'm a little bit confused by this first page and by the concept behind, okay, so Superman's just floating out in space and suddenly he's been attacked by – Booger creatures, which which is the way that Frank Quitley is is interpreting Bizarro's in this story, but I don't really know where this came from or why it's happening. Uh, bluntly, I don't either. And a minute ago, <laughs> you know, you said in your view this is sort of the low point of the series, and I kind of have to agree. I mean, Grant Morrison is the kind of writer who. It's not enough that he just has a story with a plot in it. There's usually an idea that underlines everything he does. And I think I heard somewhere, uh, or it was probably like in an interview or something like that, but basically um, in an interview that he gave, he said words to the effect of – the way he saw it, basically, you could compare All-Star Superman as a, as a sort of miniseries – to the passing of time where the first several issues are evening and then these middle uh, chapters uh, the ones relating to uh, the bizarros that's nighttime and then the last uh, I don't know maybe like the back three or four issues that's morning okay and I'm like okay well you know Grant that's great but that is, what is that supposed to make me forget that these bizarro stories are just kind of what the fuck you know mm-hmm. and look i mean i am all for a good old-fashioned old-school superman versus bizarro fight right i'm i i, I like that it's it, there's there's something in you know a superman fan's genes that i think he just digs on seeing superman throw with bizarro right but we get i don't know what like what, like, what would you say like maybe three or four pages of that and then and then we're off to the races. And in fact, maybe I'm just being a bit of an idiot here, but actually there's – I don't understand exactly what the fuck is going on, at least at the beginning of issue number seven, right? Because it starts, spaceship gets I don't know what. That's page one. Page two and three – or page two is Superman and the Sun Eater playing grab ass. Superman, or page three is Superman leaving him behind, at the bottom of which he gets attacked by bizarros. 
He's about to crash, and this is pages, what is this, four and five, the two-page splash. He's about to crash into the Bizarro, uh, the Cube Bizarro world. Mm-hmm. And that's great, except then we're, you turn the page from there. This is page 18 and the second uh, All-Star Superman trade. And then uh, we're back on Earth, and shit's going down, and Superman's right here to fix it. I mean, so like you were saying, I don't really understand what's going on here except that maybe the bizarre it seems like the bizarro world is getting close to earth because we see it in the in the sky in a couple of places and maybe all of these bizarros once they attack superman they then crash land with him to earth because if you notice in the in the two-page spread the 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 creature that has superman is dressed in the bizarro superman outfit Mm -hmm. so um one of the reasons I don't get this, this this two-part series is, A, this interpretation of Bizarro is nothing like any Bizarro I've ever read before. Now, granted, the only Bizarro I have read is, like, the original Tales of the Bizarro World Adventure Comics run mm-hmm. and New 52 stuff, which doesn't pertain to this because it's after. Um, but I've never seen anything like this before. They're, they're zombies, Right. They're they're turning people into bizarros by touching them. And I don't get that. Right. And also the really insane um, con- confusion talk confuses me. But we can talk about that later. Um, well, I'm, honestly, there's no, uh, no time like the present. I mean, apart from saying I just don't especially like it. I mean, I don't really have just tons and tons to say about these uh, bizarro issues. That, yeah, Superman basically saves the day. He finds himself trapped in you know the bizarro world. Wherein he meets Zabaro, the imperfect duplicate of Bizarro, and then that's that. And so I don't. Okay, and then eventually, of course, he finds his way home. That's great, good for him. But I guess, like, apart from that, I just don't really have a whole lot to say about it. So, like, the I guess the concept of Bizarro here, like, I've never thought of Bizarro as being like an inviolable, inviolable uh, element of the Superman myth, right? And I guess that's pro. That could be why I'm just so cool with um no, it, it, oh, well, I was going to say I'm I'm just so cool with uh, the way that Smallville did Bizarro because that's really not Bizarro from the comics either but anyway that's like I said that I guess like the his look and his his kind of Bizarro speak doesn't bother me what the only thing that that kind of just stood out to me as distracting is that whole uh, Bizarro transformation regular people undergo when they get touched by Bizarros well, the, the basic, the very, very basic, you know, thing that is Bizarro is that he's an imperfect copy of Superman. Mm-hmm. And you can take that right there and do a hundred different things with it. And I think that a lot of writers have interpreted it different ways. That's all been really fun. Um, the way that it was done, you know, we we, we, we used, if, if we had a dollar for every time we said the word Silver Age last episode, you and I could quit podcasting and retire because, you know, we'd have all the money we ever needed, right? Right. Um that was a joke because of all the money we make from podcasting. <laughs> and um, yet the Bizarro world concept from the Silver Age, it comes down to this. The Bizarro code is us do opposite of all earthly things, us hate beauty, us love ugliness, and is big crime to make anything perfect on Bizarro world. So really, they just have opposite reactions to everything compared to what we would have. And that's it. And yet this, 
you have these weird zombies that speak so confusingly you can't – you have to parse out what they mean every single time somebody says anything. And and the storyline – I mean, where did this bizarre world come from all of a sudden? It, it, I almost think – I feel like I read a line somewhere that said it was a – that had to be destroyed. I don't know. And they, they send it down to like a bottom-level universe, and I don't really get it all. Um the the Zabaro idea actually does have other comic book origins because they use this duplicator ray to, to make duplicate copies of Superman and everyone comes out as a bizarro and everything, you know, it just happens over and over again, except for every now and again, like once in a thousand times, it'll malfunction and make something that looks like a bizarro, but actually has its mind intact. And so it is a perfectly normal thinking um creature that looks like a bizarro but from bizarro's point of view it's an it's an insane creature because it likes beauty and hates ugliness and all the other stuff so you have this zabaro idea who's not retarded right and in, in this interpretation of bizarros they're all just retarded and zabaro is not retarded so that part you know i could kind of go with but i just don't really know what these two issues were supposed to do and aside from setting the sun eater free what was the purpose of this part of the story and I'm at a I'm at a loss to be honest with you. And you know, as far as the Bizarro speak is concerned, just this dialect that they have. To me, I think one of the things that that ultimately bothers me about Bizarro speak is that it's usually not consistently applied. And you know, and and there are really like two ways of of screwing it up. And we see them both in comics all the time. Number one. No two writers between each other can really seem to agree on what exactly that should mean. When they say that the opposite, what exactly does that mean? Do you mean opposite in terms of words or do you mean opposite in terms of actions? You know, there's, it just seems like there's a huge disconnect there. But then even when a writer – I guess like apart from that, you know, apart from the fact that writers themselves can't seem to agree on that, it doesn't seem like it's consistently applied throughout any given issue. And so sometimes you have a Bizarro who is th – there's a coherent line of thought in as much as um, he is expressing an idea or an opinion or what have you. But it sometimes it's like the mask slips and it's almost too close to, I guess, proper English. And so you have this kind of glaring omission that – Anyway, it just it, it, it just kind of makes you wonder. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I, I just kind of wish that writers wouldn't wouldn't bother with. I mean, I, you know, there's no writer out there, not one. There's never been a writer who's drawn breath who can make Bizarro speak work. So I wish they'd just give it up, you know, stop trying, because it's never going to be it's, – it, it's just I've never seen it work ever, you know. And I've, I'd like to think that by now – I mean, I've – like I said, I'm I'm not a huge Bizarro guy in general, but I've probably read a hundred Bizarro stories in my life, and the ones that have Bizarro speak, it's just I don't know, it 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 just never it never adds up. And as to you know, and actually, I, kind of separate from that stuff, on um this is page thirty four in the trade. There's uh this sort of reveal of uh, Zabaro. He's standing on. It looks like a kind of shanty or uh, I don't know what the hell this thing is supposed to be, a shack or something. And this is his big reveal, mm -hmm. you know, with the cube-shaped moon in the background, which I have to admit, that's 
nice touch. You know, bravo. Yeah, that was pretty fun. But there's something here in the art that just looks off. You know, I realize that the whatever it is that house that he's standing on is supposed to be fairly high up and close to camera. And then the things in the background are actually supposed to be in the distant background. But there's something about this about this page that just looks off, like the perspective here is just off somehow. And mm-hmm. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something here. And it's to, I'm telling you, it's to do with the background. I just I, 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 I don't have enough artistic acumen to really explain it, you know, like put it into words. But something yeah. here. Do you see it too? I mean, is it just me? It's almost like it's almost like an MC Escher kind of effect, mm-hmm. but it's not. Hmm. It, you know, the way we, where you have one perspective from one direction of the shot doesn't match up with a perspective from another part of the shot, and it almost looks like it was planned that way. And MC Escher, of course, it was because he was kind of a genius like that. But here, it's just not. Right, and. Yeah, and I guess, you know, speaking of that, the, um, it's just, I guess, you know, there's maybe a logical counter argument here that maybe the nature of reality in this under universe or whatever it's called is just different. I mean, maybe you walk outside your door, you look up and you see what's to the side of you, you know, except that that's really not, you know, and, and, and I guess by that, what I'm saying is, you know, they, they just operate on a, just a different level of of physics and stuff that that we do and that okay whatever i think this is this is the only page i can think of offhand that that has this issue that, that has this i'm going to call it a problem because i think it's a problem this is the only page that looks like that the rest of the time it it seems like it operates according to fairly real world um look and physics and all these other things it look the bizarro homeworld it's got its own unique architecture and that's great and and definitely looks like it has its own unique atmosphere, but it seems like it's just this one page that has this weird, goofy, off-kilter quality to it. I don't know. Yeah, usually it works, and in this particular shot, it really, really doesn't. Maybe it was an effect they were going for that just didn't quite go the way they wanted it to. Um, I was kind of rereading some of the dialogue here just to see if I could wrap my brain around more of what's going on, and... Evidently, this entire cube world is an organism Mm -hmm. that is retreating into, like you said, the underverse or something. Um, And since it's doing so, the the light from the yellow sun is getting refracted toward the red end of the spectrum. So once Superman lands on Bizarro World, he begins losing his powers because he's under a red sun, not a yellow sun. Right. So everything in the second half of the story is because he's out of powers. But, but yeah, um, <clears throat> I don't really have a whole lot else to say about the story. Zabaro and he help save the day. It looks like Zabaro's going to go stupid, too, at one point during the story, but then he doesn't. Um, I don't really know. I know that saving Earth from Bizarro home and returning from the Underverse are two of the 12 labors. Mm-hmm. According to somebody's list, but um, but I can't think of I can't think of what this was supposed to do. I think it would have rather had this whole thing just be one chapter of the story. And yeah, it does feel like it's. Yeah. And you know, I it, I guess the sad thing is, you know, we're I don't feel like we're being unfair, but we are being kind of hard on this uh, 
on a, it's a great on, way to start the episode. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's it, and it's funny because this is one of my favorite Superman stories ever. But, you know, I guess nothing in life is perfect. And this is definitely a uh, – it's just it, – it feels like there's a larger story that's being told. And it feels like Grant Morrison is almost going out of his way to avoid it. And this kind of feels like by about, you know, issue number seven, you maybe do want to start talking about the fact that, you know, my main character – and by the way, one of the, the most popular characters in all of fiction, he's dying. And it's maybe, yeah. you know, we should start talking about that. But I do actually have a little bit of a parting shot here with Zabaro. Whenever you see him uh, on the last page of issue seven, which again is page 34 in, uh, in my trade here, you do get, uh, like I said, you get that reveal. And he looks like maybe he's kind he, he he's kind of this pasty skinned kind of thing but he's he's basically fairly humanoid and i it looks to me like basically his character got i don't know redesigned but maybe just reimagined or rethought or something because he looks weirder and weirder as issue number eight goes on right and i think it it kind of bottoms out let me see of course these fucking pages aren't numbered anymore wouldn't wouldn't you know who needs page numbers anyway well, they are kind of passe, but okay. While you're looking at what's that, I do think it was kind of a nice touch to have his color scheme reversed, so he has more of a Monel color scheme, where a mostly red suit and a blue cape. Right. Yeah, I was actually going to mention that too. It's like, wow. So somebody definitely had Monel in mind here. This is page forty-nine, where you finally get sort of a uh, a little bit of a close-up, and he's gone from looking like a fairly you know, pasty sort of humanoid type of thing to at the bottom of page 49. He just looks like freaking weird, you know, and like a, he looks kind of like a zombie. And yeah. it it's just, I'm telling you, it's like his whole thing just got completely reinvented. His whole look got totally rethought uh, before issue seven came out. And I, I don't know what the hell happened there, but Anyway, so I guess... Well, Superman's not looking good, too, so I wonder if whatever's causing Superman to deteriorate is also bringing Zabaro down a bit, too. I don't know. Because Superman's looking pretty hellish yeah. in that same page, in the next page, with all the, the brightly blue-lit sweat and his hair kind of going everywhere now. And the spit curl is no longer plastered to his forehead. It actually has a life of its own, like yeah. it's the Venom symbiote in his hair. And it's yeah. just like floating as a tendril out in front of him. You're right. Actually, and that's a that's actually a good point. It's a fair point. But all right. Well, anyway, so I guess to to move on to other things, this is uh we we come now to uh, issue nine. This is the uh, I guess Superman two portion of the story where Superman meets uh, rather than I guess Kryptonian villains. He meets actually who are these people? Basically, like former cops. Well, not cops, but like mil Kryptonian military, is that who these who 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 these people were? Or? Um, yeah, I can't forgive me because it's been like a few weeks now since I've read this. Mm -hmm. Um, Bar L and Lilo, mm -hmm. these are not characters who exist in Cause of Four, so he's just created them. Uh, the first astronauts from the planet Krypton who drifted lost in space for decades—that's yeah. who they are. Yeah, page seventy-six or sixty-six. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. But they do – I mean it seems like the intense racism and superiority that they bring with them 
does not seem to be an odd or unusual thing. It's almost like this is the way Kryptonians would be toward humans. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. And this is something that kind of bothers me about some of the Superman um, stories in, in history that have dealt with Kryptonians coming to Earth. Because, okay, yes, once Kryptonians come to Earth, they get all sorts of superpowers and, yay, they're gods. But back on Krypton, nobody had superpowers. Everyone was just doing their own thing. There's no reason that Kryptonians are inherently better because when they lived on their Earth, on their world, I should say, Krypton, they were just walking around living daily lives, riding their bikes and picking their noses just like we are. It's only when they come to Earth that they get these powers. So there's nothing inherently better about being Kryptonian. Right. Um, So I don't know why it's so consistently portrayed that Kryptonians get these powers and they're automatically like, oh my gosh, I need to kill all the humans. And it Uh, seems like the only Kryptonians who don't have that attitude are Lara, Kara, and on a good day, Jor-El. Right. Um, I guess my answer to that is that not that I would want to get political about this, but I've often wondered if, I guess, the modern depiction of this isn't, in some way or another, and not to get too specific, but there isn't some kind of political commentary going on here vis-a-vis uh, cultural imperialism. Mm-hmm. And, um, I see I, what you're saying. Yeah. Well, that's good, because you know, if I had to get specific about that, I'd actually just change the subject. But um, basically... God, and I'm trying to think of a of a nice, safe, inoffensive way of, of uh, saying what I need to say without getting too specific. Basically, um, less the, so now, but at the time when this book was uh, coming out, I, I think uh, whoever wanted to trademark the term cultural imperialism, would they could pretty much expect uh, to receive a fucking fortune from certain newspapers and cable news networks at the time this was coming out, this is not to take sides in that particular debate. Other than to say that it was going on, and this was kind of a burning topic of conversation, at least somewhat, back in what, like when was like 2006, 2007, around through there. And I've often wondered if the, their usage here is, and again, maybe I'm seeing something that isn't here, but sort of this cultural imperialism that these two seem to have, if there isn't maybe another way of interpreting that. You can disagree or agree as you see fit. No, I, I see exactly what you're saying. If you want to keep things vague, that's totally cool with me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've I've studied Spanish history. You know, I've studied the 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 conquering of Mexico and all sorts of stuff like that. So I know we, I know we were going with with stuff. So um, actually, I like that better yeah. because that was actually a lot safer to a topic than what I was thinking. So yeah, well, yeah. I just giving that what the thing is. There are so many examples. <laughs> Well, right. That we could use. And I guess um, um, in relation to that, like how – like in general, how are you – like I guess where where are you coming from when it comes to, uh, I don't know, depictions of Krypton? I mean do you sort of like the the sort of asshole crypt, uh, Kryptonians that I think maybe was pioneered by John Byrne and then God knows amplified by others? Or do you like more of like the kind of friendly, smiling, sort of Buck Rogers type of thing from the pre-crisis? I mean, like which, like of the two, which are you more into? I guess, I don't know. I don't want all happy and smiling, 
but I would like Krypton to be a sort of place where we can have some like sci-fi adventure kind of stuff because they were a, a more evolved society technologically speaking in a lot of depictions and to see just an alien culture on an alien world doing alien stuff mm-hmm. um i like those kinds of stories i i know that there are fans out there who think krypton's real and only purpose is to explode after after clark leaves and that's fine um but i do like when we get some backstories that show you know jarell and lara younger in life um that might be why the first act of man of steel is my favorite part of the movie because you get to see an alien world and you know i wouldn't say that that movie depicted kryptonians as assholes so much as there's one particular cast that was genetically designed to be such right um but you you get this idea just in the, a lot of the stories that have been told, at least in modern stories, that if Krypton people come to Earth, they're automatically going to want to dominate, and Superman's a dumbass for not wanting to join in the fun. Right. And you know, he's gonna he's gonna take a human wife. Um, okay, that's cute and sweet, but come on, she's only human. Yeah. And it's just it's just that sort of thing is just kind of kind of bothered me. I. I there was a Silver Age story done in a Superboy issue where what would have happened if all of the L family had come to Earth instead of just Superboy. And that story in the early 60s, mind you, actually addressed a lot of the modern themes of um, cultural distrust and um, dislike for Kryptonians, both as a because uh, they're aliens and because they're super powered. But eventually, you know, since it was the 60s, they got over that pretty quickly. Um, but you know, they just, they, they lived their life and they did their thing on earth. Um, and I would like to think that we could have that happen more often, but then again, maybe there's not a whole lot of story potential there. I mean, if if you're going to bring Kryptonians to earth for some reason, you got to have a story there, right? Right. And if they just come to be happy and, and, and have a good time, then, okay, where's our conflict and how are we going to resolve this and get it back to normal at the end? Right. So maybe I'm just you know, buffing against something that's necessary, but I, I, I do tend to get tired of that kind of storytelling. And, and that's not to say that this particular chapter isn't fun. It is fun. It's, it's a great chapter. It's just an example of a theme that has been done a lot. If, if I can say it that way. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, honestly, like when it comes to Krypton, what I usually like to see is a society that's fundamentally alien. And, I don't really care, you know, the specifics of it or if there's a, I don't know, maybe a political allegory to it or what. Those things do not bother me. I simply don't want it to be sort of futuristic Earth. That just doesn't, I don't know why, but it just, it feels to me that, you know, it's already enough of a stretch in credibility to believe that Kryptonians look so similar to humans. (laughs) Yeah. But you know what? That's kind of one of the major conceits you have to make going into the thing. So I'll roll with it. Okay, fine. They look they look like us, but God, I mean, they shouldn't they shouldn't act like us. They should be better than us, or they should be worse, or they should be I don't know. They should just be different. And that's one of the main gripes I had with, um, like in retrospect that I have with Superman the movie, because it kind of feels like it it's basically Earth with different architecture, and I just that kind of bothers me. And there's even a degree to which the pre-crisis Krypton kind of bothers me, too, for the same reasons, because it's just futuristic Earth. It's not really 
diff- I mean, they maybe have, you know, a different calendar than we do and they have different holidays, but that's really about it. I mean, just the day to their day to day norms and social mores, their morality isn't that far away from us. And at, like you were saying, one of the things that I kind of admire about Man of Steel is that they really did go out of their way to create a society that has a different sense of uh, morality, different different social mores. Hell, they have um, a completely different uh, societal structure. I mean, uh, it's a very caste-oriented type of system. People are created to fulfill certain functions in society. And so separating oneself from that is inherently bad. And, and okay, fine. You know, that works for me. And it, God knows it looks totally unlike Earth. So on and on and on. You know, that stuff works for me. And so I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, seeing seeing this kind of stuff here, the only thing that kind of bothers me about it is that it, these people are – these are basically – I don't know Chuck Yeager, but these are the like the, the Buzz Aldrins of, of their world. They're the Neil Armstrongs, right? And these are people that, you know, Superman's probably come to really appreciate and admire and – they're just kind of dicks, and if you, I mean, if if you have to vilify somebody, isn't it maybe better to vilify? Well, I don't know, a villain, rather than you know someone that you know all of Krypton kind of <laughs> looks up to, you know. And so, I mean, look, whatever. It's 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 splitting hairs, right? Because you're you're making the Buzz Aldrin. I'm sorry, I'm saying you're you're making the Buzz Aldrin comparison, and and um, you know. John Jameson is a, is a comic book example, and we, we get told over and over again that those are the real kinds of heroes. Those are the people we should look up to. People are willing to risk their lives and do stuff, you know, to to further the cause of humanity and everything. So theoretically, these are those characters on Krypton, and so they're being looked up to, but they're actually dicks. Right. Yeah. And uh, anyway, or, or twat in the case of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And anyway, look, it's 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 really not worth you know probably as much time as it's probably not worth as much time as i've given it but i don't know it's just it's one of those things that it it needed to be said now what i will say though is this um it does give it does offer superman one of the rare one of the rare occasions in this entire story where he can kind of have sort of john wayne fisticuffs with somebody who hits at his level you know because if you look at it there really aren't tons of opportunities in the story for him to do that, you know, whether it's because he's dying or he's up against someone that maybe they're strong, you know, relative to the human race, but they're just nowhere near Superman's level. And this is one of the few times when he can really cut loose. And it's kind of strange to think and because he really never does. But now that I look at it, he's. He's pretty much getting kicked around for most of the issue. Then he takes everyone back to the fortress. So there goes my argument. But okay, I was wrong. So, but anyway, I, God, you know, you you would think that I didn't like this story because I really haven't said very much positive about it. But you know, ultimately, I really do like it, and I and I think the reason for that is because it it really does end on a sort of up note. You know, Superman doesn't really have the time to show them the error of their ways. But he does reach a point of reconciliation with them. They do accept him as a true Kryptonian. And there's a part of Superman that, you know, wow. They, I mean, they know my name and they think I'm awesome. You know, he's going to care. I mean, he's in his own way. He's kind of as much a fanboy as anyone else. And when his heroes say that, you know, hey, you're 
you know, thank you. I, you're cool. You're awesome. You know, that means something to him. There is a victory there. Yeah. And anyway, so that actually, that is actually a really, a really good moment that, and of course the issue, uh, the story ends with, um, Bar-El cracking his knuckles inside of the Phantom Zone because he's about to kick a lot of ass. So that's a, that's a, that's also really good. <laughs> no, I actually really do like this chapter. It has a lot of good moments. I love stapling the sun with bridges. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, that was a good moment. Not the sun, the moon. I misspoke. They staple the moon with bridges after cracking it. So that was great. And... um Pulling the toupee off of Steve Lombard. That was going to be my next note. In fact, Any time page... to take that asshole down three pegs just makes me laugh. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because he's actually gotten his comeuppance uh, a couple of times now. And um, this was well, – now we have to go backwards a bit. But basically it's implied in issue number six he's on steroids. And that's why the he, he can touch the bizarros without be, without becoming one. Because the steroids have so fucked up his body chemistry that he's safe, you know? <laughs> and that's funny. I wonder if he'd be safe during the zombie apocalypse. I don't know. A washed up jock. I don't know. You'd think, you know, right about the time, you know, you get to be about his age. Mm-mm. No. Uh, he's he's going to be one of the first to go, I think. But yeah, in a real zombie apocalypse anyway, not this bizarro <laughs> one. Um, but there is a... There is a kind of – I'm not sure if this is a callback to previous issues or not and the curse that Jimmy has. But he's basically wandering around. And people – it's not underwear. It's trunks, all right? Trunks. Jimmy is wandering around, and he's basically wearing you know, just regular clothes, except he's got a pair of trunks on outside of his uh, pants. And it kind of made of all the characters in this entire story, it kind of makes sense that he would be the one to ingri- to embrace just kind of weird Kryptonian fashion like this because of the curse. But I'm not sure if this actually relates to the curse or not. So anyway, it makes me wonder how he got voted best dressed person or something. It wasn't that what it said back in issue four or five whenever they had the Jimmy Olsen issue. Right. Yeah. It was like best like. Not GQ magazine, but basically that's who it is. Yeah, it was something like that. Um, but the uh, the the issue overall, I think is a is a is a great chapter. And I think that the way they resolve it and the way they make Superman valuable to Lilo and Stitch is just kind of you know. It RL. works for me. He gets to be Superman for these Kryptonians who weren't being super. Right, exactly. And I think... The yeah, ad- I'll go for the joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, actually, since you mentioned that, though, one of the things that I that I like is, generally, it's any story that shows that, you know, Superman isn't just a Kryptonian guy in a cape. You know, there's a, there's a philosophy and a morality that underlines everything Superman stands for. It's not enough just to have the powers. It's what you do with them. That ultimately makes him Superman, right? And I think that these guys are, now that I think about it, I may be undermining the point I made earlier, that these guys are heroes in their own world. But that alone isn't going to be enough. That doesn't make them worthy replacements for Superman. you know. And there's a higher level at which he operates that, honestly, anybody can aspire to. 
but just having the powers themselves, that alone doesn't cut it. And Superman is a worldview. It's not a person. So I don't know. There you go. That's a good point on your part. Yeah. And um, he sends them off to the Phantom Zone. Is that right? And then, oh, yeah, they get ready to take down some of the criminals. Right, yeah, basically they're going to spend all of eternity beating the piss out of these people. And I don't know why, just the the thought of that, oh my, that just, that plays for me on so many levels. But it actually does kind of lead into, okay, I, I, all right, originally I was sort of confused by the artwork because at the very, like, basically the bottom of Lilo's right foot on that page, originally I had no idea what the hell I was looking at. Now... Now I realize it's basically platform shoes that she's wearing. But originally, it looked like like her foot was, I don't know, just like turned around or something. But now I know it actually makes sense now. So here we are. That's pointless. Okay, so you got anything else for uh, uh, Chapter 9? Uh, no, I'm good. Um, I mean, I we could, we could talk about the Phantom Zone and, and, and that place in, in Superman lore um, if you want to. But it's it's kind of a minor part of this particular story. I just I like the Phantom Zone. I think it's great. I think it's one of the creepiest things to think about that you have like all these Kryptonian people floating around, staring at you, but they're invisible, so you can't see them, but they can see you. And it just has so many implications with Lana Lang and Lois Lane that you just never get talked about in the comics. Right, because that yeah, after that you just get into really creepy territory. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, um, so I guess the uh, next thing up, this is uh, chapter ten, entitled "Never Ending," and this is probably the standout chapter of the entire of, of the entire miniseries. And the reason for that is because I think pretty much on every single page, it's Superman doing Superman type stuff, and it gets like towards the end. You know what what you even what you eventually realize is that he's actually he's basically preparing you know uh, himself and everyone else for a time when he's not going to be around anymore to protect them, and so it's. It's Superman performing all types of huge, important, just epic rescues and all these things. And then he also has time to talk this uh, this uh, goth teenager chick out of committing suicide. And ultimately, that's what enables part of the story later on. But in the moment, what that says is there's no rescue that's too small for Superman. I mean, he... He's got time for everything, whether it's stopping a runaway train or or taking down – who's the guy with – I don't even know his name. The Alzheimer's dude, whatever his name is. Uh, he's got time to you know deal with him, and he's also got time just to talk some – literally talk somebody off the ledge. And to me, that is, that is Superman, and, he, and even Lex Luthor's not off the hook here. Superman tries to one last time – to reach Lex, and it's all really for nothing. Lex tries, at least, to spit in his face. But Superman... Superman made the effort. And, uh, and then in the process, he basically cures... Uh, rather, in the process of doing other things, he cures cancer, 
And just to kind of find out whether or not it's even possible for the Earth to exist without Superman, he creates an Earth without Superman. Or universe, really, without Superman. Wherein Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster... And that turns out to be our universe. Or at least it's strongly implied that he, that he makes our universe. Exactly, right. And um, I'm not really sure what uh, your thoughts are about all that, but... Anyway, this is my favorite of the of the whole bunch. What do you think? Well, yeah, this is and, and we were talking about earlier how, you know, if you're gonna be the seventh or eighth issue of your twelve issue arc, you might want to deal with the fact that your main character is dying. And here in issue ten, this is where he finally starts to do that. You know, Superman knows his death is coming soon. He's finally starting to feel it creeping up on him. Not creeping up, but basically staring him in the face. And so he's got a lot of shit to do. And um, as far as the whole um, making the universe that is strongly implied to be ours, it's very meta. It's very Grant Morrison. Um, if if you wanted to slag off on this story for something that's, you know, quote, Grant Morrison-y, that would be the most likely candidate, I think. But it's not like it's the first time this has ever been done in fiction before. I mean, how many stories are there out there that have us being, you know, the center of a marble that some alien kids are shooting around on a street in the planet, you know, what's a face? It's just it's it's just a fun little sci-fi trope. And and I like it. I, I really do that, you know, Superman can do so many things that even making a universe is not beyond him. Um, I don't necessarily want that Superman in my monthly ongoing who's that exceedingly powerful. But if you're going to have a Superman be that powerful, the end of his life is the time to do it. So, um, yeah, going all over the place, saving people left and right. And they even have timestamps throughout this issue so you can see just how much he's doing and just what kind of time frame he's doing it in this is an extremely full i, I want to say 24 hours maybe it's maybe it's less than that or more than that but it, it's a lot um of stuff in a very small amount of time the uh the pulling the girl off the ledge is one of those pages that gets you know republished and facebooked so so often that um, i actually it kind of lost its impact when I read it here because I've seen that scene so many times. Yeah. Uh, same thing, but you know, honestly, yeah, things like that, they do kind of tend to, uh, sometimes get a little bit overexposed and the way I, the way I've at least started looking at it is I can't control what, you know, what other people do or the moments that they, you know, choose to kind of overexpose. But it what i what what i've eventually decided is that at least for me it's probably the right thing to do to just accept it or not accept it on my own terms rather than just rolling my eyes every time i i read this particular page because i've seen it so fucking many times now on facebook but yeah no i i do get that and actually to go back to something you said a while ago the very last page or the next to last page i guess of uh issue number 10 like you said, it's very strongly implied that this is this is where actually it's it's probably most strongly implied that this is specifically a uh, our Earth. You see a picture of a hand drawing a very Joe Schuster style uh, Superman, and that leads into something I've been wanting to talk to somebody about for a while now. Did you ever read that Boom Studio series by Mark Wade, Irredeemable? 
I've read the first couple issues of it. It is on my list of things I really need the fuck to get back to read. Okay. All right. Well, when you do and and when you finish it, I think you'll know why I asked when you get there. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts. Knowing that uh, Mark Wade and Grant Morrison are friends, I, I would like to get your thoughts on that. So. But it, it sounds like it sounds like a future episode. It does. <laughs> it does. Yeah, and I and here's where I I you know put you on the spot in front of my dozens and dozens of fans across the world, and um, but yeah, uh, honestly, there is a there is actually a really good moment uh, that Superman and Lois have. Um, it's on page ninety five in my trade. It's page. It's a uh, panel three. Superman says. Our biology is completely incompatible. We could never have children. Never have more than this. And then Lois says, there's a way. There's always... That, that, that's what you always say. There's, a, there's always a way. And this is just fucking sad. I mean, number one, we know that eventually... It's really not all that big a spoiler to say that they overcome this. Because the entire series on this point has at times been predicated on Superman having descendants. And so we know this is possible. But it's just like in the moment, neither of them – and it's weird that Superman would say that it's not possible when he knows that on some – somehow, yeah, actually it has to be. But he, he doesn't know how yet, and so in the moment, he just believes that it can't be done. And that's just fucking sad, you know? It's just – it's sad. And this is – I mean – if I if I if I'm remembering correctly, this is where she for she finally finds out that he's dying. No, that Leo had told her that he's dying. So she's having to. Because remember, this is a girl who just found out that Superman's Clark Kent, like you know, last Tuesday, and so it's it's a lot to take in for her, I'm sure. And I guess I guess maybe he's. Maybe he's just trying to console her that, you know, I'm dying, but you're not really losing a whole lot. Us just holding hands and being, you know, physically close is the best we could have ever had because of the whole um, biological incompatibility. And if you want to, you could probably add in the whole man of steel woman of Kleenex kind of thing going along there, too. But um, she she wants him to beat it. She wants him to beat death. Right. And. This is it, – it's just of – of the whole 12 issues of this entire series, really, this is one of my – it's just one of my favorite moments. It's just – I like it. And then there's another one on page 99. Again, Superman reaches out to Lex Luthor, and on some level he has to know this is a lost cause. There's never going to be any hope for, for Luthor. He is who he is, and he's – He's not going to ever he, – he's never going to give it up. But he's still trying. And I like that Superman tried, and I like that Luther slapped his hand away. And I like that all of this happens as uh, Lex is reading a book entitled Mixing the Perfect Cocktail because that becomes important in just a bit. But um, anyway, what do you think? Hold on, wait a second. He's reading what book? He's reading a, a book or a pamphlet or something entitled Mixing the Perfect Cocktail. 
That is not what mine says. What does yours say? Increase your brain power. Hmm. Are you reading the original issues, or is this? Or are you reading in the trade? Um, I'm reading scans that I think are taken from the original issues, hmm. or possibly a digital release that was done at some point of the original issues, but um, probably not from the trade. All right. Well, then. So I wonder if if they change that. Why they change that? Because you said the. Uh, Mixing the perfect cocktail is going to come into play later, which you're right, it is. And I, I think that's an interesting little edit that they that they did to to. It's not really, I guess, it is foreshadowing, but it's more of like a uh, uh, an Easter egg than a foreshadow. Right. I've got some scans too. I'm going to have a look because that seems you're right. And also the um, pamphlet that he's reading, it's. The text on the on the cover is it's a little bit hard to read, but it's clear enough to say increase your brain power. This actually does kind of look sort of like somebody photoshopped it in, mixing the perfect cocktail. Um, you know, it looks just a little too perfect. Mm -hmm. Whereas the uh, increase your brain power, it looks like it was actually drawn. So yeah, like quietly actually lettered that. Right, and. I don't know. I don't, what are your thoughts on that? You know, tra like, I realize this is maybe going off topic for this episode, but like, what are your thoughts about uh, somebody uh, basically making these changes and stuff to a trade rather than getting it right in the in the single issues? I, I understand the idea of wanting to go back and fix your um, like. You, the proof the proofreaders didn't get it, so you can fix errors. That happens in second editions of of books all the time. Um, but when you go and make content changes for the sake of actually actively changing your content, that does tend to bother me a bit. Um, they did it in um, the the current DC line of trades when they had some sort of last minute creative choices and how the continuity was going to work mm -hmm. after some comics had already been published. So they made some changes in the dialogue for the trade. And I, I, I had very mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, I liked that, you know, well, there's a version of this out here that has the correct one. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, you're, you're making a different, a different book now than you originally made. Um, this seems like a very, very minor change. I don't mind it. I actually kind of like the idea of teasing the little cocktail from the future issue in this issue. I like that idea. So since I like the idea, I like that they changed it. But if I didn't like the idea, would that mean I didn't like that they changed I just don't know if I'm being hypocritical there. Um, on the other hand, you have to have things like I'm reading early Savage Dragon right now. And I found out after finishing the miniseries and going on to the main series that the uh, trade that collects the miniseries actually added a whole 17 issues, 17 pages of story that I now don't have. So I'm kind of ticked about that. So um, there are definitely ways to go overboard with it. But as a whole, I think if you're going to make changes, they need to be like very basic. We missed this in the proofreading kind of stuff. I don't like when they change content. Yeah, that's a that's pretty much you know how I look at it as well, and I think maybe one of the most in, uh, infamous examples of that. I mean, it, you know, it's easy to find like little uh, 
instances of, you know, like things getting fixed that I think still nevertheless count for content changes. Um, I think a good example would be um, that uh, storyline from Superman Batman by Jeff Johns and Ed McGinnis entitled World's Finest. I don't give a flying shit what the trade is called. The comics I paid money for are called World's Finest, so fuck you. But there's a point when um, Hawkman hits Superman with a planet, so he's down and out, and then uh, Superman or Batman basically somehow right. gets the drop on frickin' Captain Marvel, comes around the corner, and in the original single issue, he said he obviously had no idea who this kid was, and he said, oh my gosh, it's a kid. He's not much older than Robin. This is ten different kinds of fucked up. And in the trade, he actively knows he's looking at Billy Batson, and he knows damn good and well who Billy Batson is. And things like that kind of bother me. But I think maybe the granddaddy of things that have been so heavily changed in uh, in the trade is another Jeff uh, Jeff Johns. <laughs> nope. It's another Grant Morrison story. Um, Final Crisis, where I'm told that you could read that trade and fairly well argue that is not the story that came out in in single issues at all. That is a completely different thing. I've seen a lot of people make that argument. I don't really have a stake in it either way, but I did think that, you know, the change I, because I I and I read scans, and so I'm now I'm actually trying to remember where my single issues are, or for that matter, if I ever read them, but. Um, but it did kind of make me wonder, you know, at what point – I know there's a line here somewhere, but at what point is this a completely different thing, you know? And uh, I don't know if there's an answer for that. So anyway. Right. I, th I think it, it's like George Lucas saying your Star Wars, you know. There's, there's little changes that don't really matter too much, but they're just kind of irksome. There are changes that completely change the tone of a part of the film, mm -hmm. and there are changes that make your character look very, very different than there than it was originally. And and there, I don't know. It's always weird being used to one thing and it changing partway through anyway. So why why just push that button when you don't need to? I agree. And uh, yeah, I think the Star Wars comparison is actually very apt. So. All right, that leads us into wow, we really are cracking through this stuff now. But well, and to be fair, I mean, I, I think the back half of this mini series is it, it's got a lot of ideas, but I don't know that it's it's as long and uh, on plot as and character necessarily as the other issues were. So maybe that's why we're actually able to move through this stuff quicker. But in any case, um, issue number eleven, you got Lex Luthor uh, pretty much being or at least we thought, being executed, but it turns out it's maybe not quite so easy. Superman feeding the Sun Eater, Lex going crazy with his superpowers, and Superman facing off with Solaris. I've actually got some questions for you about uh, DC 1 million, if, if possible. And then, uh, basically, right around then, Lex Luthor and his forces mounting a, a, an invasion of Metropolis... And Clark Kent dying right as Lex Luthor invades the Daily Planet. And honestly, I mean, this is to the point now where the the way over the top Silver Age type of approach that this story has uh, taken, I think, 
really goes into overdrive because you have Superman going on a little walking tour of the Fortress of Solitude with all these weird and exotic creatures, you know, feeding feeding the Sun Eater, and you know you've got uh, superpower serum and all this kind of fun stuff. You have a giant fucking purple tank that is cruising around downtown Metropolis, and nobody ever stops to say, "Holy shit, that's a giant fucking purple tank that's cruising through downtown Metropolis." It's just this is Tuesday, you know. No, 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 no. Wait, I have a dialogue here from Jimmy Olsen that says that's a giant fucking purple tank cruising through downtown Metropolis. You don't have that in yours, motherfucker. They changed that too. <laughs> Jesus, nothing sacred no more. <laughs> Um, yeah, this this definitely kicks the Silver Age high concept sci-fi into high gear, but in I think really delightful ways. Um, there's just so much action going on in this issue that I really do love how the Silver Age just goes all balls out in this issue. I mean, um, it's obvious that Grant Morrison was inspired by that, even so far as. <laughs> Down in Lex Luthor's like murder lair, you have all the various suits that he has worn throughout time. You have the green armor, you have the LL suit, you have the orange jumpsuit, all this stuff that he's worn throughout the Silver Age. And I just that's it's a great example of that. Um, there's so many things going on in this issue that are just so high concept. And it's great because it's like in the Silver Age, it's almost like there were no rules. But the, pro the, the the reason that is is because there were so many rules as far as what they could and could not put in the stories that their imaginations had to go wild in order to make up these new ideas and these new storytelling concepts to in order to just make things interesting for the writers if for nobody else. You don't get bored off your skull writing Superman comics. But all of that just really gets a bunch of play in this issue, and I love it. Um, and this has a, uh, some kind of relation to DC 1 million, basically the coming of uh, Solaris and the invasion and, you know, Superman basically turning it back. And it's been so long since I've read DC 1 million. I forget exactly what the connective tissue is here, but it's kind of funny that, you know, speaking of the Silver Age, this kind of darts in and out of the silver age in terms of continuity the style is unmistakable but in terms of continuity it pokes a toe into silver age continuity it pokes a toe into the movies but it also uh, pokes a toe into what was at the time fairly recent continuity uh in terms of dc 1 million and uh you know goings on with solaris and as we said last time uh, Cal Kent, the uh, Superman of the 853rd thousandth century, and this—I forget. Do you now? Have you? Are, are you familiar enough, like recently, with uh, DC One Million? You forget how exactly this relates to that, or I—I'm not. I know that it does. And that goes back to how Grant Morrison approaches continuity. I think Grant Morrison doesn't give two shits about continuity as far as the universe and setting and trappings around his Superman. Because he's just going to write Superman, you know? And Superman, he has his things. He's he's a, he's a sun god. And you can change what's going on around him, but it's just going to be Superman, you know? And so... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, that's what he talks like. You know, it, it he has this uh, sort of little uh, lilt that comes in at the end of everything that he says. 
Yeah. And it almost makes it sound like everything that he says is a question. It, even it, when it's it, it a, is, just a plain kinda. statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even though, I mean, even though there's post-crisis and there's silver age and there's this modern take on the silver age, I, I think to his mind, it's all the same Superman and sure he'll, he'll fit into the editorial mandate of the day, but that doesn't really change his story so much. Right. Did we talk about this last time about Batman Incorporated? Um, we talked about uh, his philosophy about it, but we didn't really get specific. So if you want to go into Batman Incorporated, please, by all means, be my guest. Well, just briefly, because I, I mean, um, it, it's you know, it's a super, it's Superman's seventy sixth anniversary, so I don't want to spend too much time on Batman. But um, well, yeah, especially not this year. Yeah. Yeah, Batman Incorporated was in progress whenever New Fifty Two came down. Mm-hmm. And so you have volume one, which is the first, whatever, eight issues before the transition. And then you have volume two, which is the nine or ten issues after the transition. Twelve, thirteen, I don't know. What the fuck? Um, <laughs> and to me, the story, the, the main crux of the story just keeps on going throughout. But there are some details that would have had to, you know, details from the first volume that can't have existed in the second volume. And what I envision is like right smack dab in the middle of Batman Incorporated, the, uh, Batman and Robin are driving in the Batmobile or whatever, and there's like a yesterday's Enterprise kind of shift around them as things change slightly. Mm-hmm. And they're still going on the same mission. It's they're still trying to deal with you know the bad guys of you know the Uruburus uh, thing and and whatever the hell that ends up being Tali Al Ghul trying to kill Batman. Um, but the details have changed. And so Stephanie Brown Batgirl, who had a role in the first half of the story, well she no longer exists. So she's no longer part of the storyline and um, stuff like that. So to me, he has a Superman in mind. And the Superman ends with All-Star Superman. There's stuff in DC 1 million and in JLA. There's stuff in his more recent action comics run. And so, and even though the, the details have changed around him, it's all the same Superman. And to, to his, you know, literary mind or whatever, it all makes sense. Right. Um, yeah, and, you know, he, um, you know, it's kind of funny, all this talk about Batman. You know, he gave... The, I've always kind of, I've never been like a a, a Grant Morrison. Uh, is it? Do you pronounce it devotee or devotee yeah. or whatever? I don't know. An admirer. However, however French you want to get with it, but yeah, right. devotee is fine. All right. <laughs> well, never been a you know basically that big on the guy's work. It's just that you know when when my path intersected with his, I was fine with it. But I've never been the kind to really go out of my way to follow. Uh, certain creators, right? You know, that one writer that for some reason really reaches you. I've, I've never right. really been that guy, but um, my respect for Grant Morrison really went into overdrive. Um, he did a, uh, I think it's now a pretty famous uh, couple of episodes of um, Kevin Smith's uh, Fat Man on Batman, where mm -hmm. he pretty much put the entire, I think at that point it was, uh, well, he basically, in his mind, he, he had really six major eras of the character that he had in mind. You know, the uh, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, all the way up through the 90s, right? And in his mind, each of those represents the Batman that he was writing about. All of that stuff was 
loosely in continuity in terms of, you know, there's no artificial division between what was published before 1986 versus what was published after. And so to him, it's all very much in continuity. And he came up with this just fucking beautiful description of it. And he, it goes on for like, I don't know, five or ten minutes where he talks about, you know, how he sees Batman beginning and what the middle of it was and just the ruts and, you know, the Batman has been has been in, you know, just in his life. And then, you know, the high points, the low points. And, you know, by the end, you know, I mean, I was driving around in my car, but I just wanted to stand up and clap because, you know, I've never been uh, like a really big fan of the holistic approach to continuity. To me, there needs to be a firm beginning point, And then from that, everything else grows, right? Right. That's the way that I would prefer things to be to be done. And the older I get, the more I realize, fucking, that's never going to be DC, right? So... On that basis, the idea of sort of taking each character's respective beginning and where possible trying to figure out some kind of way to incorporate all of that into some kind of, I don't know, bullshit sort of biography and history for this character. Dude, I defy anybody to say that at least in Batman's case, it doesn't work beautifully because he he lays out, you know, that, you know, well, and I, I'm not even going to attempt to do his accent because I can't do it like you can, but... Um, <laughs> You know, he says, yeah, you know, Batman, he started out, you know, as this golden age guy, you know, and it's basically what we saw that in that first year of Detective Comics and then just r runs right on through. And I, you know, I got to say that the reason I'm kind of, you know, putting everything else on pause and kind of being a little bit of a pain in the ass about this is that, you know, there's a freaking colossal amount of imagination that goes into even trying to think of a way to put all that stuff together. And his rationalization for it was exactly on point and mm -hmm. you know it, it it just and i guess I, I i guess what i'm saying is i hadn't really respected well I, I guess i always respected the guy but i guess i didn't really value him as a, a creative force in comics until i heard that little uh that little i don't know tangent diatribe whatever you want to call it that he went on and I, it was but it was awesome so i honestly i don't remember what the episode number was for a fat man on Batman, but it was based, I think it was part two of his first little appearance on, on that show is like, I think three parts long, two parts for sure, but maybe three parts. This was mm -hmm. in part two. And he, he basically lays out, you know, that history I was just talking about. And people, if you've never heard that, um, that episode of uh, fat man on Batman, where he does that, that gets the Magnus approval. It's worth listening to. I mean, I think, you know, especially as I get older, you know, I'm kind of done with Kevin Smith on, on on some things, but that is definitely worth listening to. So anyway, but um, going back to this sort of Silver Age style, to me, there's there's a panel. It's on it's page 116 in uh, this trade. And it's um, let's see, it's panel four, page uh, 116. I forget what it works out to in the single issue, but what's happening on the page? Uh, it's. Uh, at the very top of it, uh, Lex is putting together uh, giant robots at super speed, and he's... Uh, yeah, okay. And then in panel four, this to me is the ultimate... I guess you could say it's a mature version of the Silver Age, right? And to me, you know, what we need to do when anytime we talk about the Silver Age is we need to kind of separate the way in which those stories were written, which is basically their target audience, from 
the content of the story, right? And to me, this is the panel where we can do that, where we have this story that, it, it, to me at least, it just screams Silver Age Superman. But here she is, uh, and I can't even pronounce her, uh, her name, but um, Nostalgia, whatever. Uh, she's uh, telling uh, uh, Lex, you know, basically what her wedding plans are, if it ever been, if that ever comes up. And she says, I'll be standing on an asteroid hurtling towards Earth with my undead groom. We'll exchange vows, commit suicide, and bring about mass species extinction at the same time. And on the one hand, that's a really horrifying way to want to plan your wedding. <laughs> on the other hand, that is a very Silver Age, at least, idea of, have, of, of standing on an asteroid and, you know, and all of these things being just so commonplace. And, but this, there is nothing childish or child-oriented in this panel. So it's all very, I guess, Silver Age style, but not really Silver Age substance, if that makes any sense, right? No, I, I get exactly what you're saying, yeah. Because the, the, the stories we get in the Silver Age are often very silly, but there are some really damn fucking epic Superman stories that were done there at a writing level that a six-year-old could appreciate. <laughs> and so you have, you know, some really high concept sci-fi being thrown out there, but it's accessible for little kids. And here you're right. The imagery that she is, is presenting here, it is morbid, but it's also high concept sci-fi. And it's exactly the sort of thing that, you know, <sighs> I was going to say it's exactly the sort of thing that appear in the Silver Age, but our whole point is here is, is that it's not. But I, I get what you're saying there. Right. And uh, anyway, so and I guess the reason I, I bring it up is to say that I think, you know, I'm actually at a point in my life where, or at least my fandom, where this is the type of Superman that I want to see. You know, this just way over the top science fairy tale kind of kind of thing. And honestly, All-Star Superman is the closest that we've gotten to that so far. And I think it just works so perfectly. And... You know, and I, I guess people can pick apart, you know, details of the story and how does this match up with continuity? Like, is this story in continuity or is it out of continuity? And if it's out of continuity, what's up with DC One Million and all these little Silver Age references and movie references? And you know, you know, like you can pick that stuff apart all you want. The fact is that there's a style that he's going for here, and that's what I want more of. And I, be honest, I honestly don't think that we're going to see it probably ever. But at the same time, it's just this is what I want from Superman right now. And I've just – it just kind of feels like, you know, for – I don't know that we've necessarily been all that positive about the stuff that we've talked about, at least some of the things that we've talked about in this like 7 to 12 episode uh, – or seven to t issues 7 to 12 that we've been talking about in this in this episode. But overall, I mean it's uh, – I just love it. I love it, love it, love it. You know, the, the more you talk, the more I think that even though you're not really into the continuity, you should just sit down with his 18 issues of Action Comics and give it a go and see what you think. Um, there's one part in there where uh, Lois Lane is dying and Superman's like, OK, um, we have very little time and the surgeons uh, don't have the precision they need for this. So I'm going to go read every single medical piece of literature in the library and come back and do the surgery and doctors, you stand by and help me out as I go. <laughs> and he, 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 he just, you know, in five minutes becomes an expert and then surgeries Lois and, and saves her life. So if, if you're looking for like high concept, can, you know, Superman, 
there, there, there's definitely some stuff. It doesn't start there. And in fact, that's one of the problems that the artist had because he came on the book wanting to do a golden age Superman revival and it quickly moved away from that. Right. But, um, but there's, there's definitely some stuff in there that you might enjoy. Right. Um, well, and since we're already so far off topic, what's a little bit more? I really enjoyed that first story arc. I mean, I thought it was – it's one of those things that if it had come out you know, 10 years earlier or 10 years later, I think everyone probably would have gone easier on it. But it didn't come out 10 years earlier. It didn't come out 10 years later. It came out just about three years after Jeff Johns' Brainiac storyline. And the similarities there are really too – too numerous to completely overlook and so i wasn't bothered by them but i can see where maybe some people were and honestly one of the um, attractive aspects of that storyline especially the first issue was this sort of i'm not i'm not even exactly sure what to call it but it's basically a very inexperienced very rookie type of golden age superman who didn't really put up with any shit from anybody and, and the so, phrase I use on my podcast is rough and ready justice. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's perfect. Rough and ready justice, Superman. And it, you know, you, and as you're reading through all this stuff, you really can't overlook the, the, the uh, golden age aspect of it. And I, I really enjoyed it. And in fact, I, my attitude about it at the time was that it was this sort of weird kind of hybrid of the golden age. A little bit of Smallville, kind of, more in terms of uh, like how he, how he looked, this kind of cobbled together costume that really wasn't a costume. Right. And, um, you know, just the kind of st- classic Grant Morrison, way over the top imagination. And I really enjoyed it. And if that had been like Action Comics at, as, a, as a book, you know, if that had been that book's identity for the, I don't know, first two, three years or four years, however long of just, you know, this rough and ready justice version of Superman. And he's just out there doing his thing. And this is, you know, like year one style Superman while the monthly title Superman was more the current modern day kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought there was a lot of freaking potential there, you know, because, yeah. you know, you get to have your cake and eat it too. And that you're really now you're from the start building your foundation and the sky's the limit in terms of what you do with that, but you don't have to you you don't have to force this on your readers if you don't want to. You know, if they would rather read the uh, adventures of a more modern day, and I, I guess dare I say more traditional type of Superman, you know, the adult, hardened, experienced Superman, they you know they have that option. And so, I, I honestly I thought Rags Morales his whole attitude about doing Superman in the first place. I thought he was he came off like a really just pompous brat. I think it was an interview he did with was was it Word Balloon? It was I forget, it was something. I don't remember, but it was some podcast out there. And he, and you really got the idea that he was just too cool for school when it came to doing regular Superman. But if we can do this sort of golden age type superman that we haven't really seen in comics probably since the golden age well that he could get on board with but that whole costume with the cape and the trunks and boots and no no i'm 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 just too cool to do stuff like that you know and look he i've never met the guy and i really do like his work and so it feels kind of unfair to 
put all that on him. But honestly, he's the one that said that stuff, not me. But <laughs> anyway, so anyway, like I said, um, it was uh, – I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I've actually thought about reading his uh, – his action comics run because I've heard just so many good things about it and it sounds like it'd really be up my alley. It's like 16 or 17 issues or something like that. Yeah. 18 issues, um, plus an annual that ties in, but wasn't written by Morrison. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was actually, was it written by Sholly fish? Sholly fish was doing backups for the main series and he, he took the reins on an annual that was that was pretty decent. Um, yeah, it's Rags Morales. Yeah, I, I heard similar reactions to his statements. I don't know. I guess you like what you like, and as an artist, your reasons for doing a particular character might not be the reasons that a writer would want to do that character. I don't know, but um, <clears throat> it's it's the sort of thing where whenever they put him in the suit. Mm-hmm. There was a mixed feeling of, oh, yay, we get to see how the suit came about in the modern continuity. We get a new story about that. Happy days. Hurrah. And then afterward, it was like, but I wasn't – I, I kind of miss what we were doing before. You know, Let, let's have more of that pre-suit, you know, T-shirt and jeans running from the cops kind of Superman because that was that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was it was a mixed mixed reaction for me at least. And that that was actually the way I felt about it. And honestly, like I don't know where I heard it, but I swear to have read somewhere that basically the first twelve issues of Action Comics those were basically gonna be that, you know, rough and ready justice style Superman. He's in that just kind of goofy looking T shirt and he's got that sort of makeshift cape and he really can't fly or he doesn't know how to fly or whatever and he's going to be just sort of this uh kind of two-fisted golden age style superman for the first 12 issues after which we would see where basically action comics starts catching up with superman and so i look i don't know obviously that ended up not happening but you know yeah i was kind of right there with you i was thinking you know what if I can't have Superman exactly the way I want him, I'd like to see a little bit more of this, actually, because this is – it's different and yet not. You know, right. it's sort of the old made new. And this was the sort of reboot that – honestly, if this had been what the golden, what uh, the new 52 had been all about, you know, sort of – a sort of half-assed golden age introduction for everybody and then we gradually bring them up to speed into the modern day – I would be a new 52 cheerleader to this day. And right. obviously that's not, it's not what happened. And I, and clearly that's really kind of getting away from what we're really here to talk about. But uh, anyway, I just want to give you the last word on this before I drag us forcibly back on topic. Um, no, just that uh, the first 12 issues were like the whole five years ago thing. You get an arc that leads up to his getting the suit and then you have another arc that takes place after the Justice League is formed together, so it's still very early in his career. And then issue 13 jumps ahead to roughly present day, and the arc finishes out in the present day. Mm. Um, but, yeah. Every time that they do a story that flashes back to the early days with the with the uh, T-shirt, like whenever Batman Superman started up with that, it made me happy. Mm. So I, I, I like to see those. But, yeah, we, could, we, could, we I guess, you know... We do have some ASS to talk about here. Yes, we do. We do. We really do. We got to get deep into it too. Yeah, it's gonna I, be I, rough. 
I'm uh, dripping with excitement here. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's so tight. Anyway, so let's see. Now, basically, you've got this scene, and I, I love it because you what what you basically have is Superman. For all he knows, this is pretty much. Uh, the last ride of of uh, Superman and his enforcers, you know, and as far as he knows, this is this is it. You know, he's going to go up against Solaris and he's going to die. You know, uh, he, he, he doesn't necessarily have reason to believe that he's going to survive this. And, yeah, you know, the, the entire previous issue was about him you know, writing out his last will and testament and everything and, you know, what things are going to be like. But there's no real fear on his part. And I happen to think that 99.9% of us, if we're about to do something that we know, or at least we truly believe is going to be the end of us, like this is the last thing I ever do before I meet my maker, I'm sorry, dude, you're going to have some pretty fucking clammy hands, you know? And right. there's just none of that. You know, he uh, he and his uh, robots zip off into battle, and he doesn't – oddly, I think he he wasn't expecting to survive the fight. Obviously, he does. And he lives at least a little while longer. He lives. And I don't – you know, and, and at the same time, there was no fear at going into battle that he thought was going to kill him. There's not really that <clears> – <throat> exuberance that he's still alive whenever he comes out on the other side he just accepts everything as it comes along and it just it's to me this is what superman should be you know and there's no need to shove it in your face and you know have somebody remark on how calm he is in the face of what he thinks a certain death it's just it's enough that he's this stoic about it and it just it plays beautifully it's great yeah, he <clears> – <throat> sorry. There's – if I had any complaint about the way this is done, it would just be the fact that it seems to ramp up all of a sudden at the end. Right. You you have basically nine issues of Superman stories that could really happen during any other Superman story. Right. And then the last three issues are suddenly, oh, by the way, I'm dying last act. Right. And that sort of feeds into the point that we made a while ago that the Bizarro storyline, if it needed to be there at all, you could have knocked that out in one issue, you know, or maybe com or if you had to have two issues of that, just combine the second part of it with the uh, Lilo and Barrel storyline. It just... It felt like this thing needed another issue more than what it really got, and it, it was almost like that final issue kind of snuck up on Grant Morrison. He, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, just did not plan for it, and so we're having to kind of rush things along sort of at the end when, honestly, 12 issues was more than enough to tell the story that of All-Star Superman the way that it is right now just the pacing had been set up and even not even all the pacing, just the pacing in those like three issues. Like what, what are we talking? That's like seven, eight, and nine mm -hmm. uh, issue seven, eight, and nine. Basically if just those three issues had been slightly truncated together, you would have had one extra issue where 
Superman has that, oh shit, Solaris is coming moment, you know? And right. he kind of has it here, or n not even here, actually. It was a couple of uh, issues back, but you get the idea. And he gets a tip-off from the future that Solaris is coming, and he's coming for blood. And so that's basically what what sets up everything that's come up up until this point. And, it, and you're right, it does feel like it sort of just comes out of nowhere. And it... Anyway, I mean, look, I, on the one hand, I, I, I kind of want to say far be it from me to you know, criticize, you know, Grant Morrison on this too much. I mean, he's the guy that came up with the story. But on the other hand, I know good pacing when I see it. And this is not really it, you know? Right. So, but anyway, there's also this kind of neat little moment where uh, Lex Luthor's niece meets up with uh, Jimmy and Lois out in the uh, out in the streets of downtown Metropolis as this huge horde of... Lex's own robots invade, and I don't know. I just I I like it. I like Luther's niece as a just as a character. If she were to be brought into, well, actually I can't say that anymore. I was about to say, well, if she were brought into the regular continuity, yeah, I'd I'd be up for that. But I'm not reading the regular continuity, so I guess I'm a liar. But um, <laughs> but it just it just kind of works for me because this is Tuesday in Metropolis. I mean, this is this is not into the world necessarily this just shit like this happens all the time and, and superman saves him from it right and so that's why jimmy and lois really aren't freaking out because let's face it if they really thought that superman was on his last leg i think they would be reacting to the situation a lot differently than they do and it's just a, a testament to number one how common this stuff is in this kind of silver age world in which they live but also they're I guess, r resistance to the idea of believing that, you know what, Superman may not always be here to watch our asses. And right. so, you know, what are we going to do? But but uh, anyway, so and it, it just this moment, it it just works for me. It sells this chick's ambitions and kind of her just how, what a sick freak she is, while at the same time <laughs> selling Lois and Jimmy's hope that this isn't over yet, you know? It just it it works on so many so many different levels. So and I'm rambling. So I give you the floor. Uh, I, I'm actually pretty good on this issue. Um, I don't really understand where Solaris came from, except that we knew he was coming and now he's here. And the Sun Eater helps to kill him and everything. I know he was used in one million, but as far uh, but apart from that, he's he's not a previously conceived character who we should recognize, is he? Not really. I mean, I, look, I reserve the right to be wrong on this, but I think apart from maybe even just scattered references, but I just don't think that he has a whole lot of history. I mean, this is the a good bit of it right here. So, Pretty much it. So okay. uh, the final issue, number 12, the final chapter, basically starts with uh, Superman having a kind of a fever dream, flash, uh, not even a flashback, but maybe, like I said, just a hallucination of... Uh, Hanging out with Jarrell on Krypton, or is he in the afterlife? Who knows? It's a Navajo Vision quest. Oh, there you go. There you go. So there is a moment here that was actually lifted, not quite word for word, but still. I'm trying to find the exact wording so that I can actually read it here, but. Yeah, uh, this was actually lifted almost word for word and dropped into a, 
in the Man of Steel. And basically, you have Jarrell saying, You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you when the sun comes. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. And if there's any better, I don't know, encapsulation of this kind of aspirational Superman that Grant Morrison is, is, is dealing with here, I don't know what it is. I mean, in two panels, he pretty much sums up what this specific take on Superman is all about. He's not the everyman. And he's really not the sort of over-God either. He's just an aspirational figure meant to embody the absolute best of Krypton and of Earth. The very best. And it's not an issue of is he human or is he alien. He's Superman. He's not human. And he's not an alien. He's Superman. He's a unique creature in all of, in all of existence. There's no one out there like him. And I think that was kind of the entire point of the uh, of the Lilo and Barrel issue. They don't represent the best of anything. Superman does. That's the difference. And anyway, so that and apart from that, it was also just a really cool moment in uh, Man of Steel. So anyway, because we don't we don't really get any Jor-El in this story, and that's one pretty crucial element of Superman's story is the whole you know Kryptonian backstory and his relationship with his space dad as has become the common nomenclature. And uh, yeah, I was I was surprised when I was rereading it because I'd heard that, you know, who wrote, I always get the names mixed up. Was it Goyer that wrote the script for Man of Steel? Yeah. Okay, that he had lifted from All-Star and Superman. Um, and so whenever I read this, I was like, oh, that's what they're talking about there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a neat moment there. We haven't seen Jor-El very much. And, and this kind of gives us a moment where we do... But what really I really like about this whole final act is Lex Luthor's what is what is he gonna do whenever he actually has a power? Because he has said over and over again throughout his life story that he if Superman weren't in his way, he could do all these things for humanity. He could save the day, cure cancer, um find a way to, to package multivitamins and all this other stuff. So now that he actually has the power, now that Superman is not a, an obstacle to him, what does he do? He goes on a destructive rampage. <laughs> well, he does. <clears throat> there is one thing he does that uh, not very many uh, people seem to remark on, but earlier, much earlier in the in the story, uh, somebody, I think it was from Project, one of the worker bees from a Project, said that they were basically trying to distill the entirety of existence into a haiku. And to truly understand that, they would then understand the entire universe. Lex Luthor does that. He says, the fundamental forces are yoked by a single thought. It's thought controlled. 17 syllables. Hmm. So Luther actually does it. That's the haiku. <laughs> wow. I hadn't even picked up on that.
I'm trying to find the I'm trying to find the page where that is. Oh, uh, basically, it's the moment when. Let me get back to it. Okay, I don't know what this works out to in the single issues, but it's page 147 at the top. This is basically uh, Lex having uh, his his moment of epiphany. He's going back and forth with his daughter and or daughter, his uh, niece, and uh, he says it's so obvious I can actually see and hear and feel and taste it and. The fundamental forces are are all yoked by thought alone. And so, actually, wow, I got it. Actually, I, I did I see it. Okay. Yeah, well, anyway. So, there you have it. I didn't actually get it word for word. I tried to go off memory, and that's, whatever. It's not so bad. So, but, uh, yeah, so there you have it. And, uh, yeah, he actually manages to do it. So, and now there's another moment, and this actually kind of calls... This is the one moment that, honestly, I this I think it's gotten a lot more debate than I think anybody really intended. Basically, Superman or Clark uh, blasts Luther with the uh, gravity gun, and that of course sends Lex tumbling down to the street below. Mm-hmm. And then there comes a moment where Jimmy rushes up to Clark, openly gives him a Superman outfit. And then says, oh, that's a great disguise you've been wearing, Superman. And on and on and on. So the question is, does Jimmy know? Or is this, or does he really think this is just Superman in disguise and Clark Kent's off somewhere safe? I took it as him still being clueless and just thinking, oh, well, the only way Clark Kent could die but not really die is if he's really Superman in disguise. That's really clever and, and just take it at face value. I guess I can see why someone might question that, um, especially since it's Morrison, and Morrison's always known for his um, transparent writing style, he says with tongue-in-cheek. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I guess it could be either one. I just took it at face value as he you know, thought that that was Superman in a Clark suit. Mm. Well, my view is that I like the way that uh, uh, Smallville did it, where Lois was kind of clued into the fact that Clark is the blur pretty early on. And so she's kind of in on it from the ground floor. That, to me, felt it was just it, – it just felt uh, honest with the material that they were working with. Right. And to go backwards, um, Lois and Clark, the show Lois and Clark – I always you – know, maybe this is just my tendency to overanalyze things and read between the lines and, and stuff. But I always thought that Perry White, both in Lois and Clark and in the uh, the Burn Age continuity just in general, he knew Clark mm-hmm. was super – he would never be stupid enough to say it out loud to anybody, least of all Clark. But he knew. Right. And here – on the one hand, I want to say it would be kind of fitting for Jimmy Olsen to have his turn, but it just doesn't – and that's actually the way that Grant Morrison views it. He thinks that you know Jimmy probably knows that Clark is Superman. That just does – it doesn't work. He basically leaves it ambiguous on purpose, but you know that way if you just cannot abide the idea of Jimmy Olsen knowing that Clark's Superman, well, you have a way out, right? But he says that there's right. there's a really good chance that he knows, and that just does not work for me. And you know, so it's not so originally. I just I wanted to take it at face value, 
And so that's why you – know, that basically is what informs my view that you know Jimmy thought – that this is Superman in disguise rather than actually Clark that, uh, you know, I just didn't really want to analyze it beyond that because the alternative means Jimmy Olsen knows the secret and while Lois has been living in denial of it. And that just does not work for me. So, yeah, it's weird. I get it from a literary standpoint where a writer writes a scene in such a way as to leave it open to the interpretation of the reader. Mm. I get that from a literary standpoint, but from a CDO continuity that this is, you know, this fictitious universe is real in a certain respect. So it is happening in a particular way Mm. that is objective, not subjective. Either Jimmy knows or he doesn't. So which is it, you know, and I don't like to think that he does. If if Perry doesn't know and Lois doesn't know, then there's no fucking way that Jimmy fucking Olsen knows that Clark is Superman. I, I, just, I, I don't buy it for a second. No, I totally agree with you. <laughs> and honestly, for the, for the exact same reasons, I just I'm sorry. I, I no, that doesn't work for me. You know, I, I look and just a while ago. Well, just a while ago, it was uh, in the last episode I was going on and on about how much I love the Mr. Action take on Jimmy Olsen. And that really, to me, that's what Jimmy needs to be. If, if this guy truly is Superman's pal, he needs to be worthy of it. And the only way really for me to get there is not if Jimmy is a uh, some kind of just colossal retard, but he really is kind of almost a, an adventurer in his own right. And all Superman does is enable him to, to, to basically be his best. And that, I think, is what we're seeing in All-Star Superman. But I, man, I got to draw the line somewhere. And I'm sorry, Jimmy Olsen knowing the secret, and like you said, in a context where Perry doesn't and Lois is in denial of it. Uh-uh. No, no, that, that, no, not happening. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take a, I'll take a lot of things, but I'm not going to take that. <laughs> now, from there, we move into the... Superman versus Super Lex battle of well, it's not even really a battle royale. There's actually a larger issue that's being go- that, that's that's going on here. But what works for me here is that Superman isn't interested in trading punches with Super Lex, right? He doesn't let himself get suckered into uh, a, a, a too much of a physical battle. And the reason for that is because he knows there's a good probability he's going to lose. He has really two things that he need. well, three things, really, that he needs to do. He needs to take Lex Luthor out, out of commission, and I'm sorry, the gravity gun's the only way to really get there. And I, that was a nice, genius application of physics to the story. I really liked that resolution there. Ditto. Me too. And Superman, he has to survive, and then number three, he's got to restore the sun. He's got to rebuild the sun. And so the fact that, you know, those are his objectives, punching Lex around is not going to satisfy any of those things. And so because of that, Superman doesn't really try to fight. He just keeps hitting, hitting him with the gravity gun. And that's how Superman ultimately turns the tide against Lex. And then that leads to this moment, this sort of revelatory moment where uh, – First off, Superman punches Lex right in the face, 
And then he's this is the one time he really does actually, you know, get violent with Lex. He punches him in the face and then, uh, you know, basically knocks him out. And then he then he says, I think, probably the most destructive thing that anyone can say to Lex, which is you could have saved the world years ago if it mattered to you. If that's really what you wanted, you say that that's that's been the entire life's the entire point of your life, and I'm the one that kept getting in your way. If that's really what you wanted, I would never have been an obstacle. You're the one that 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 created the situation. I didn't. You're just making excuses, and it worked. I don't know. It just is perfect. I love it. Yeah, because Lex Luthor is, I mean, a giant hypocrite, and he's just pointing it out. Right. And the other thing is, you know, Luther's vanity. I think this this is basically maybe the best example of his vanity that there's a there's a truth to Lex Luthor that I don't think the character himself has ever really spent much time considering. And that is he's not as good as he thinks he is. He's not as smart as he thinks he is. And that if he ever really had the kind of open field he says he wants if he really had Superman out of the way and he had a clear field to save the world or do whatever it was that matters to him, he knows deep down inside he couldn't do it. And that is his lie. So. I- it's interesting that you say that because I've been reading some Silver Age comics, you know, because that's what we've been talking about. And, um,. There are two that come to mind. One is the death of Superman mm-hmm. in Superman 157, which is where Lex Luthor cures cancer. No, Superman 149. As a bid to prove, huh? No, that's Superman 149. Yes. What's 157? Fuck if I know. Okay, 149. Yeah. It's my job to point out your your your, flaw, your faults, not to <laughs> tell your stories. <laughs> Okay, let's do man 149 and um, yeah, 157 is just a random crap issue. Okay, the he makes a bid to come out of to jump out of prison. It's not curing cancer because it was 1961. I don't think that curing cancer was a thing yet, but um, he does come up with some really humongous contributions to human society to show how awesome he is and show how he's reformed. And he makes the entire world believe that he's a good guy now, and that's how Superman. Uh, you know, appeals for his parole and gets him out of jail and then blah, blah, blah. So if he puts his mind to it, at least in that imaginary story, he can do stuff. And I'm also thinking of um, Mrs. Luthor, which was a Lois Lane issue where some aliens do surgery on Lex Luthor's brain and remove all malice from it. So he's basically a nice guy now and Lois Lane marries him. And in that world, he also turns his genius towards the good of humanity and does stuff. So I, I've often, not often, but I think I've at least heard a couple times that people put this whole Lex Luthor as a secret good guy who's only hampered by his hatred of Superman, that this is sort of a modern take on the character that we definitely see expounded in issue four of this series. And I was just thinking about in recent weeks how that's really not the case because in the Silver Age, when he had the opportunity to do good things, he actually did them. So it's, it's I don't know. Not to say that you're wrong, just that there are there are takes on the character that show that that he might have 
he might have done it given the chance. But then again, imaginary stories are imaginary stories, and maybe there's a billion to one chance it would ever happen that way. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. It's very true. Now, the very next page after Superman knocks Lex in the middle of next week, normally this is sort of a comic book art no-no. Basically what Frank Quietly does is he stacks panels on the left, right? So you have this sort of partial splash. It's this huge panel on the right-hand side. And then you have panels stacked one on top of the other on the left. And honestly, that's kind of a no-no in comics because the uh, in Western countries, you want to read left to right and then top to bottom in that order. Left to right, top to bottom. And so when you when you write comics, you need to tell the story left to right, top to bottom. When you stack panels on the left like this, what you end up doing is trying to force readers to read top to bottom and then go left to right. And that... I've said before, there are, it very rarely works that way whenever you try it. It's the rare artist who can pull that off. And I'm um, pleased to meet you, Mr. Quietly, because you pulled it off. There's no other way to have done it except if you want to have that big triumphal moment where Superman red and blue blurs off into, off into outer space in the last panel, you have to stack the panels on the left, the other panels on the left. And so, anyway, that's... It's apropos of exactly nothing. I just, you know, it's just I always pick on pencilers when they screw this up. So the fact that Frank Whiteley gets it right, it needs to be said. Yeah, I think that there, there's he puts so much visual continuity in that left stack of panels that your brain doesn't even try to do it the other way. Right. Because there's there's you know what this is. This is a U-shaped flowchart. The, the 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 eye is pulled down the left hand side with glowy Superman kissing Lois, and then you cross over to I love you Superman, and you're pulled back up the right hand side. Yeah, and it, it's it's really really great. Um, there were artists working for Timely back in the golden age that would do like a square panel, and then go to the right for a double length vertical panel, and then come back to the left for what would be panel three mm -hmm. in the orientation on the screen. But it's like you're, you're trying to do a U-shaped, but, you know, from left to right and then down and then back to the left again. So it's basically and, uh, reading really the page, like, clockwise? Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't it, – it's always confusing when they do that. It really, really bothers me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I guess I've never seen that, but well, okay, that, that's a weird way to construct a page. But if you were to do it right, you know what? I'm convinced. You know what? If you handle it right, if you, if whatever it is that you're drawing, if you do it in the right way, and if it's a certain type of action, I could actually kind of see that. So, but yeah, actually, you know, and it's kind of funny. I was just going on and on a, a minute ago about stacking panels on the left. That's actually where my little note ended. You're the one who actually pointed out that you say, who, who pointed it out that you start at the top of the page, and again, this is page 149 in the trade. You start at the very top of the page. You work your way downward, then you go to the right, and then you're you're pulled right back up. That I did not notice, but you're right. That's exactly what happens. And actually, you know what? Now that you mention it, I think that's why it works. Mm-hmm. So, wow. 
anyway, so from there, the story flashes forward, and again, and I know, I'm, I'm sure that by now people are either used to us beating the Silver Age drum, or they're probably about to riot, or hell, maybe they've turned it into a drinking game, I don't know. But there's <laughs> a, um, Jimmy once again arrives at the Superman memorial service on his jetpack, and I just, fuck, God, I love that. That is just so cool the jetpack that is now a valid means of civilian transportation hello silver age he needs a rocketeer helmet and yeah he does that that sort of motorcycle helmet he's wearing that just doesn't cut it well and you know what you'd need some kind of eye protection anyway just so you could see where the hell you're going and a rudder yeah that too. right exactly the rocketeer <laughs> helmet right so Anyway, um, and then following that, I can never remember, but what is the Superman um, who's basically building a sun? This is based on some other type of illustration, and I'm blanking on what this is, but it's this – it's so recognizable, and it's so iconic, and I have no idea what this is supposed to be based on, like what it's called. I just know that there's something very familiar about this image. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, and I didn't look up what that was, but it is, it's probably a Da Vinci or something. Um, and it's – this is what confuses me about the story a little bit is exactly what the fate – like what does the day after this story look like? Is Superman in the sun doing miracles for a few years and he comes back as a sun god? And is is there a second Superman created? Um, and that's how we get his descendants because of the, the, the project two at the end. The the ending of the story confuses me a little bit as far as what we're supposed to expect after. And I think actually that this is where at least parts of DC one million come into play because it was generally known in the 853rd thousand, how do you say that word? 853rd thousandth century that basically Superman's coming back. He's coming out of the sun, and this is something that it caught nobody by surprise. Everyone knew this was happening. And if you remember in, um, I think it was issue six, where... Uh, there are at one point three Cal L's in that story where you have young teenage Clark or upper teenage Clark. Then you have the unknown Superman of 4500 AD who's actually Superman in disguise. I'm guessing a pre All Star Superman, Superman, but anyway. And then you have what I think is the post DC 1 million Sun God Superman where he comes out of the sun. And that's, in my understanding, that's him. Right, because they do the little thing where Superman asks who he is, and he just kind of laughs it off. Right. Okay. Okay. And uh, anyway, and that's again that kind of works for me too. And um, and then the issue ends with, again, this is just such a a Silver Age ending. It's uh, or image I should say, where it's basically the the familiar uh, pentag is it pentagon or pentagram? I I usually say pentagon. Pentagon? Okay. Pentagram, I think, is the actual, like, spiritual symbol. Oh, right. Yeah. The Okay, fine. Okay, whatever. Okay, well, okay. I failed geometry. So, anyway, <laughs> the familiar pen pentagon, and it's got uh, the two, rather than the S, it actually has a two inside of it. And uh, it's kind of funny that, you know, what I took from this image was a very kind of quintessential, I don't know. 
this just seems like a very Silver Age thing to do to me, you know? Grant Morrison has talked about this, and he says that this is maybe not a very good thing, you know? That, you know, basically mankind has been given sort of the keys to the kingdom at this point, and it's not necessarily a given that they're going to go in a positive direction with it. I can see that. So, and I kind of, it's one of those things where I'm of the opinion that I don't completely believe in the auteur theory of storytelling, but I do believe somewhat in, I don't know, ethereal authority, right? And I do think that, you know, the writer, creator, whoever has the right to tell us what something means. This is one of those times where I really wish he would have kept his freaking mouth shut because I never really saw the dark side to this until he pointed it out. I mean, to me, this was just kind of putting a cherry on top of the Sunday of Silver Age Superman awesomeness that this story had been. And this is, wow, rather than the S, it's got a two in there. And, oh, wow, that's just so Silver Age. But at the same time, it's it, it's just it literally would not change a thing. It's great. And then he, here he comes. He said, well, there is a nasty side to this, you know, where all kinds of bad shit could come from them having the ability to manipulate Superman's genetic code. And honestly, I had not thought about it in those terms. So what a Debbie Downer note to end the thing on, but what do you think? Well, until he writes a sequel, I think we can just ignore it. (laughs) There you go. Because, yeah, I don't like to think about that either. I'll tell you what it did remind me of. Rather than Silver Age, it actually made me think of 90s Superman continuity. This is the project, after all. And we have a big Superman-related canister with a two above it. Mm -hmm. And in 90s Superman, we have Project Cadmus cranking out Superboy clones. And New 52, we have that as well. So it's uh, – well, not Project Cadmus in New 52, but still same idea. You have this idea of recreating Superman. So whether Morrison was taking that from continuity or just from his own brain, um, either way, I, I – yeah, I don't think we need to have the necessity that we would fuck it up. I think it's okay to just imagine and pretend that it would go into a nice direction, that we'd make a new sun god for ourselves, and that he could be a hero as well. Right. But, you know, then they're going to come out with... um, Oh, I was going to make a joke about whatever the... the What's the name of the sequel to um, Batman the Dark Knight? The Dark Knight Strikes Again. Yeah. When All-Star Superman strikes again, then it can all go to pot. Oh. (laughs) Well, and that actually kind of leads into the uh, next item on the agenda here. I am in love with this story. And I guess maybe the better way to put it is I am more – not just the the issue of, you know, Superman dying and and all that stuff or facing death or what have you. But I guess more the angle of the imagination uh, of – I guess a less because the minute I say I don't the minute I say a more mature type of silver age, you know, people want to think, you know, blood and tits and all this stuff. I don't mean that, but I just have a little bit more grown up way of telling silver age stories. That's really what I dig about about all star Superman. Now, that having been said, how interested would you be? in Grant Morrison returning to not just this style, this specific take, this story, you know, maybe something that takes place before All-Star Superman or maybe 
after the return of the sun god or, or, or however. What, how interested would you be in seeing that? To be honest, I would probably eat it up with a spoon. Because <laughs> um, it, it's such an interesting world. And it's a neat take on the character. I don't know if necessarily a prequel to this story, but either a um, a sequel in the universe, maybe ten years later, whenever whatever this project two is bears fruit, mm-hmm. or um, I'm not that invested in the DC one million world, so. Although I think that would probably be cool as well. I might be less excited about it. And, and of course, as soon as they made the solicited announcement, I'd have to go and do a DC One Million Reading Project and read the entire thing so I could, you know, follow Grant Morrison's take on his particular little corner of it. But, yeah, I'd be down for it. Grant Morrison on Superman makes me happy. And that, I, you know, that's actually very much my point, too. Um Grant Morrison, I realize that, you know, he has a less than positive reputation among some contingent of fans, and there's nothing to be done about that. It is what it is. But at the same time, there's just so much imagination to this to this story and such reverence. You know, he's not telling the story in a way to make fun of the Silver Age. He's I don't care what he says to the contrary, he's paying homage. Now to him, to say Silver Age Superman may be redundant to him. Maybe that's just what Superman is. But that's not all he is to me. You know, there is a Golden Age Superman. There is a Silver and Bronze Age Superman. There is a Burn Age Superman. And then there's a, you know, you have all of these different eras to choose from. And let's face it, Superman has been fighting the label of irrelevant since the onset of the Silver Age. And to me, this shows... This story, All-Star Superman, proves once and for all that this character is not irrelevant and will never be irrelevant. As long as there's a human race, Superman will always matter to us. And I would love to see, even if it's not All-Star Superman, but some kind of Silver Age, like very heavy Silver Age type of monthly Superman comic come out every month. I would be on board with that. In so frickin' many different ways. And it just kind of saddens me that Smallville is its own is its own thing. And I don't really think that you, you could call Smallville Silver Age Superman. But it has so much in common with it. And Season 11 is really the closest thing we have right now to that kind of pre-crisis type of Superman that I'm just so in love with. And it, it just kind of makes me think, you know, well, what would it be like if we had an actual... Hell, even call it a continuation. I don't care. A continuation of the Silver Age, as far as, you know, canon is concerned. You know, I would be really on board with that. And it just, I, guess, I mean, it's there's no reason to think it's ever going to happen. But I would, oh, I would so love it if it did. You know, we're, we're entering a new era of comics publishing. And I, I, this digital first thing that DC is doing right now and that Marvel has played with to a much lesser extent. I think we're we're seeing the beginnings of something very new in comics. And I'm not sure how likely it is that this will happen, but I think that this opens the door for multi-continuity story building. That, you know, Marvel they have their 616 and they have Ultimate 
And that's sort of a unique thing in the comics world right now. But with digital first, if you have Batman 66, if you have fucking Adam West and Burt Ward in a weekly ongoing comic book, then you can have the Silver and Bronze Age continuity revived. You can have the uh, pre-Flashpoint continuity revived. Right now you have Transformers. They've gone back to the Marvel run and they've revived that and continued that story alongside the modern transformer stuff. And apparently so, they've won a lot of admirers. They've won a lot of friends and influenced a lot of people doing that. Yeah. I mean, readers aren't dumb. <laughs> yes. I understand you want to have a brand. You want to have an idea going forward. You want to have an image for a character that you can market and merchandise. And they've done, I think, a pretty good job of taking their new versions of their characters and the new visuals and putting them out there. I think of all of them, the one that seems to get the most wide reception is the new Wonder Woman. New 52 Wonder Woman is all over the deviant art and fan art kind of scene. Um, and I think it's a great design for the character. New 52 Superman is all over the toys and lunchboxes now, too. So there's – but even though you want that – you can still publish other stuff. Miles Morales' Spider-Man is not going to replace Peter Parker's Spider-Man in marketing. That doesn't stop them from publishing comics about him. Right. So do the same with other Supermen. Do the same with other Batmen. Um, I would love if, if – okay. I was not a big follower of Batman Brave and the Bold because I'm not a big follower of Batman. Right. But I did see some episodes – Mm-hmm. especially the one with Superman in it that was towards the end of the series run. Oh, that was awesome. And God damn it, if they would just take that idea and make a Superman cartoon that would take the silver and bronze age of Superman and just embrace it and do some really just imaginative stories with that kind of a universe, get the Mixia's Pitlick in there, get the Super Pets in there, get the five different colors of Kryptonite in there, get Lois Lane thinking that it's Clark Kent, and gosh darn it, I can prove it this time, but in the last 30 seconds of the episode, Superman pulls the wool back over her eyes. Make that a cartoon series. I would, I would, I'd fuck somebody. I'd fuck Dan DiDio to make that happen. Um, my girlfriend would never forgive me, but yeah, I would too, actually. And, <laughs> and you know, look, I mean, here's the thing. I'd like to think I've got some kind of a reference point on all this because when I was, when I was a kid, I mean, I, I, and I think you and I are pretty close to the same age. And so when really, when we were kids, it was kind of starting to become a trend for DC and really comic the comic book industry in in general but i think dc in particular to look back at their library of material and then start releasing that in sort of affordable uh formats and maybe the at least the two best examples i can think of obviously is uh, first is going to be the greatest stories ever told line and i mean the original one that spanned an entire char- a, a character's at that time entire history and brought you pretty much right up to the present day. And in, and in Superman's case, admittedly, that's kind of weird. Because if you think about it, there's one hell of a major thing that happened to Superman. <coughs> reboot. In the 80s. That um, <laughs> makes collecting something based on his entire career kind of a weird fucking thing to do in 1989. You know? 
nevertheless, the, the, the principle of it wasn't lost on me. And then you had the greatest Batman stories ever told that, uh, you know, his entire, you know, publishing career. And that's easier to do with, with uh, Batman in 1989 than it was Superman. And then, and I'm, I think it was called Silver Age Classics, but they did some single issue reprints of incredibly historic uh, Silver Age stories. You could think of this as sort of like the forerunner to the to those Millennium editions. I think we talked about a while ago. Yeah, they all seem to come out within a couple of months of each other too. There were like twelve of them. Right, and the one that I remember is, or the ones that I remember are there's a reprint of Action Comics number two fifty two, and mm-hmm. then um, there's Flash number one, basically the introduction of Barry Allen, and Showcase four. Right. Oh, Showcase. My bad. Um, and then, and then there were a bunch of others too. But those were the two that I really remember. And I'd be shocked if Detective Comics number twenty. Well, no, it, no, because it was Silver Age. So no, that I guess that's out. But I'm sure there was something for some equivalent thing for Batman. And I read those when I was a kid, and they were geared towards kids. And damned if I didn't, you know. I mean, yeah, the I guess the cars and stuff, the hairstyles and fashions looked a little you know, pretty old fashioned, you know, cause this is like vintage fifties and sixties stuff that I was reading in 1991. So yeah, that but, stuff stands but it's out. It's not like you didn't know that. It's not like it was confusing because they had a big old thing that said silver age classics on the front. Well, there's that. But the other thing was as I read them and just hear me, this is going to sound weird, but kind of hear me out here. Right. I processed that in a very different way than I think a kid in, who read those issues brand new off the rack in the 50s and 60s, I processed that in a very different way than I think they would have. Specifically, what I, you know, when I was reading that, to me, that became part of the tapestry of the story. That's a, that's a stylism of the story, rather than that's just what cars looked like. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably what kids at the time, if they thought about it at all, that's probably what they thought. To me, this was now it's part of the stylization of the story. You know, Lois's hair looked like looks like that because that's what women dress like in this fantasy world in which these stories take place. That's what cars look like. It's a very shiny, happy sort of fifties type of aesthetic. And that far from detracting actually kind of enhanced the story for me. And the stories were written for young kids. I was a young kid. And so it kind of was right there in my wheelhouse in terms of the kind of stuff that was written Actually, slightly below my level, but I could still get into it. It wasn't, like, offensively below my level, you know? Right. And I don't know if that's how you reacted to that stuff, but what that tells me is that that type of imagination, if if it appealed to me as a kid, I'd like to think there's some percentage of kids out there today that it'll it'll still appeal to. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And... When you were talking about different ways of getting this stuff out there, I was thinking about Marvel's digital subscription they have right now, where they have put huge runs, just huge swaths of the beginnings of their characters available digitally. Mm -hmm. And you pay for an annual subscription, and you can just read everything. And DC right now has – is they're, they're increasing their comicsology library. And who knows how that's going to change with the Amazon purchase. But, you know, just just going on past patterns, they're increasing their comiXology library. That's 99 cents a pop. And that's kind of steep. So um, I would I would like to hope that there will come a time somewhere in the future of comics where 
the entire back catalog of comics publishing is available online through a license, uh, a, a legal licensed medium to read. That if I want to read Superman's entire 900 issue run of Action Comics, there is a licensed medium through which I can do that. And until there is, there you know, until there is, we have to go to torrents and stuff like that. But I'd like to hope that someday in the future it'll be there. Well, and logistically, I kind of have to wonder how some of that would work because at the time that you and I record this, you haven't heard this episode yet. So because it hasn't come out yet. Um, but a, while, a couple of uh, episodes back, what I did was I talked about the uh, DC Comics Library edition of uh, Superman's Kryptonite Nevermore storyline. Now, I don't know. Did you ever pick up that hardcover? I didn't. I've read um, the first couple chapters as single issues, but I haven't read the hardcover. Well, can I give you a nickel's worth of free advice then? Sure. Don't. It's a fucking rip Okay. You know, I mean, look, I like the story. It's not a reflection on the story. The story, I, look, I, I can't sit here and tell you it's awesome. It, I've never been really just huge on that story. I, I respect and actually cherish what that story set up in terms of basically bringing Superman into the Bronze Age. And in fact, you could argue Superman might have been, I don't know, the second character or the third character in all of comics to enter the Bronze Age. Just let that sink in for a minute. But apart from that, once you move away from the historical value of it, the DC Comics Library reprint of all of that, basically what it did was it was, in, I think, intended to present that storyline for all of its historical value in a very sturdy, good-looking, high-quality type of presentation. I mean, it's got good, thick paper. It's not flimsy paper by any means. I mean, this is thick high pulp paper it's it's really high quality the printing process is really high quality and it kind of felt like dc spared absolutely no expense on this thing except for one fucking crucial thing they didn't i don't know if the right word is remaster or recolor or what the art and it looks to me like they basically just took the negatives out of storage slapped them on the page and shipped this lemon to us for like twenty eight ninety five or whatever it went for. And it kind of felt like, you know, you've gotten the best birthday cake, like the ingredients for the best birthday cake that anybody's ever thought of, and you mixed a bunch of dog shit in there, you know? And that's just kind of what it felt like. And it, and it made me wonder, you know, to kind of tie it back to your point, if I'm going to pay really any amount of money for some kind of a licensed uh, download, whether it's a subscription or if it's just one-off, like iTunes-style one-off or, or just whatever, I'm going to want a little something-something for my money more than just the comic. I'm going to want it to look good. And even if they just do a very simple, very flat kind of recoloring job, like I think they did for most of – did you ever pick up the um, – Superman in the or any of the uh, decades, but really Superman in the seventies trade. I didn't, but I think the thing you're talking about is the sort of thing that like the Marvel Masterworks do. Right. Okay, fair enough. Well, and where, it, the, where, the, where they've gone through and just put a new bold, fresh paint of you know coat of coloring paint on the image, so it doesn't look like you have um, 
the printing, the color printing process technology that was used in 1962 for the early Fantastic Four comics. It doesn't look like that in Fantastic Four Marvel Masterworks. It looks like, you know, bright, bold, present color printing technology on there. Right. And, you know, and actually, I kind of have a little bit of a beef there, too. I mean, to me, there is a happy medium, you know. And what they did in in, in the Superman in the 70s trade was they sort of split the difference on all that. They said, we are not going to use modern coloring job on this. That's just that's uh, that's out of the question. Don't even ask. But at the same time, there is just no way we're going to slap existing masters onto this page and just ship it out. And so what they did was they compromised. They basically just used a very simple, very, I think, kind of limited color palette. It's it's printed using modern technology, and it's recolored using modern technology, but it doesn't have those gradients and really high-quality, uh, really high high-tech uh, kind of coloring job. It's just very simple. You know, you have a flesh tone, and that's basically everybody's flesh tone. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I've seen what you're referring to where you have, like, the 3D gradient look to a person's face. Oh, yeah. And so it's Jack Kirby 60s art, but the pink is fading to dark as you go across to, to show shadow. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how I feel about that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, my suspicion – and you know what? I could be dead wrong on this, but the the first time I can really remember seeing that, it was with um, – it was some – it was a reprint. What I remember of it was the uh, Denny O'Neill um, – no, I'm blank uh, – Neil Adams – uh, run on a on a Batman, and there's a there's a a part where Bruce is sitting on the floor and he's doing some kind of a relaxation technique, like some kind of Jedi relaxation shit. I don't know, and it just looks off. You know, it's got this ultra 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 modern coloring job, and I'm telling you, somebody spared no expense in terms of making this thing look modern, and it just looks off. I don't. And my thinking is this: had Neil Adams known for a fact that this is the way that his story was going to end up being colored, I think he might have drawn something differently. He would have yeah. he would have done something or he might have used less clutter on the page, fewer panels on the page so that everything can be bigger. I don't know. But it's just that the way that it is, it just kind of looks like this sort of sludge kind of mess where you have this kind of vintage art with this ultra-modern coloring and they... It's it's the two great tastes that just taste horrible together, and it just that doesn't work for me one bit. And the thing is, the reason I keep I'm I'm being such a pain in the ass about this, forgive me, is number one, DC could have done that for the DC Comics Library edition of uh, Kryptonite Nevermore. They could have done that, and somebody made the affirmative decision not to, and we know this because at the very least, Superman number two thirty three is reprinted in Superman in the 70s, and it's got that simple coloring thing that I was just talking about, and it looks freaking awesome. And now what we're talking about is for them to make that stuff available for any kind of legal download, paid or whatever, they're going to have, like like I said, for me, it I want it to look the best it can. And they're gonna that basically to me means that when I download it, I want to see a new coloring job. They're going to have to go through there one by one by one and recolor those sons of bitches because my thinking is most of them look they were fine for their day and you had to release something uh, and it was on a deadline you you had to put something out that month and so here it comes ready or not right well a lot of them they've already done the they've already done that for the archive releases oh really 
the oh. DC Archive editions, all the coloring's touched up in those. Oh right, yeah. So and and, and Marvel had that had uh, head start too because they had done all the Masterworks editions. So I'm pretty sure they took those masters and used them for the basis of their digital releases. So you know for at least the ones they've done the archives for, which for the Golden Age is quite a few. I mean Superman. I know Batman's entire 1940s run has been released in some form or another up to the end of 1949. So all that's been processed. It can all go online tomorrow if they wanted it to. Right. Um, Superman's not quite as far. And I don't know about the other Golden Age characters because you have some characters like Hawkman that they've only done the first 20 odd issues of. And you have some characters like Dr. Faith that they've done the entire run because, A, he didn't last that long, and B, his stories were short, so we can squeeze them all into one volume, and we've done it. Um, so there, there, there are a, a variety of um, preparation levels, mm-hmm. and they've, 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 they've slowed so much the fuck down on those archive releases nowadays anyway. Yeah. Archives and Chronicles are coming out so slowly. And it's really annoying. Um, but if they wanted to, they could do it. And I think that the digital, the digital age is, is such that hopefully one day they will. Right. And to, <clears throat> to bring it back to your point of, you know, digital releases and multi-continuities, I mean, as you say, I mean, that's pretty much where we are right now, I think, already. I mean, um, the best example uh, that I think you and I are familiar with is going to be uh, uh, Smallville uh, season 11, right? Where this is something that it's not even part of the new 52, like one of the 52 Earths. This is just its its own its own little thing. And you know they're out there plugging away and telling their stories, and and it's great. But at the same time, this is part of a a larger line where you have Adventures of Superman, and I'm just talking about stuff that's coming out right now. You've got Adventures of Superman which I, I think is basically just an anthology book. It's not really based on anything. And No, it, each of them kind of makes its own rules up as far as what's continuity and what's not, just based on its own story. But you're basically approaching the story of, okay, classic assumptions of Superman have been made. Now let's tell a story. Right. And that, by the way, I've wanted something like that for Superman since like 1993, at least. So, that, no, this, that's fine. Yeah. That, that works great for me. Then you've got Injustice, Gods Among Us, Year 2. Batman 66, Teen Titans Go, The Vampire Diaries, Batman Beyond, Justice League Beyond, and then something or other called Scribblenauts Unmasked. And there's Oh, that's a fun book. Oh, it is? Oh, I other than seeing ads for it, I really couldn't tell you anything about it, but it, it's a sequel off the Scribblenauts game that's out there that DC uh put out uh last year and it's the art style is from the game, so it looks like a childish art style. But um, if you don't mind the fact that they're, you know, a little boy and little girl helping the DC heroes save the day, since that's kind of the concept, it's a pretty fun story. All right, fair enough. But the and that actually kind of goes to my point here, where you see a pattern here in all this: Batman '66, Smallville, Vampire Diaries, Batman Beyond. Justice League Beyond, Scribblenauts, you see maybe some continuity there. All of these things are based on media. And mm-hmm. th- these were TV shows before, and now now they're uh, continuing in comics. 
And <clears throat> apparently the fact that Batman Beyond is being published in the same line as Batman 66, and I gather that's not fucking anybody up. Nobody's having meltdowns and paroxysms in comic book stores trying to figure out exactly how it is that the Adam West Batman could possibly exist in the same line as the Batman Beyond uh, Terry McGinnis. That doesn't seem like it's happening. There's room in the marketplace, like you were saying, for everybody. And it kind of made me wonder, you know, what if it was possible to have... And you could make this, I guess, con like I said, canonically Silver and Bronze Age or not, and just have maybe something that's derivative of Silver and Bronze Age, but is still maybe its own thing. Continuity, don't get me wrong, it has continuity of some kind, just based on that my beloved pre-crisis Superman, existing alongside Smallville Season 11, existing alongside a continuation of and I mean specifically John Byrne's Superman, like what would he have done? Well, let's fucking hire him and let's have him uh, pick up the story following Superman number 22 that he would have wanted to tell. Just go, or, or whatever, whatever you want. Why can't you do something like, or here's an idea. What about continuing the adventures of the Christopher Reeve movie version of Superman in comic book form? How about that? Who wouldn't be up for that? Or maybe bringing Mark Wade on board and saying, okay, why don't you continue telling birthright stories? I mean, it just kind of feels like, you know, the sky's the limit with with what's possible with digital, especially considering the limited amount of overhead that you have. And in fact, you could even make it digital exclusive and charge like, I don't know, 99 cents per copy. Then you're not even competing with your comic book stores, who, by the way, can still sell trades of this stuff. Everybody profits, you know? I mean, is there something wrong in, in, in the in this scenario I just pulled out of my ass. I mean, do you see any holes in this anywhere? No, I mean, there, there's, there's the, the situation, the, the industry as is right now with the digital premiere is rife with potential there. There's possibilities coming out the ass and I'm not an executive. I don't work in publishing. I don't know. Maybe there's some, magical taboo out there that would that would that would bring all this to a fucking screeching halt but assuming that that's not the case assuming that we just have to you know have the meetings and hire the people and make it happen then yeah with, with the way things are going right now they are the digital series they're doing they're getting paid for that three times because it comes out digitally and everyone buys it for 99 cents a pop then they take two, three, or four of those 99-cent things and collect them into a print edition a few months later. Okay, now they're making $3.99 off of every print edition. Then they take several of the print editions and put them in a trade volume. And they're going to make $14.99 off of that. And if and they could get another one if they make an omnibus. I don't I don't know if you really – is anybody out there really desperate for a season, Smallville Season 11 omnibus? I don't know. But they could do that too. Who knows? Yeah. It's – it's really, really, <laughs> like I said, ripe with potential. Uh, all you have to do is have a rotating art team because one artist can't come up with that much work. Mm -hmm. um, but the, it's, it's a lot easier to write that quickly than it is to draw that quickly. So you have one guy doing the writing, you have artists coming and going, and you just make it happen. I don't see why this can't be a thing. I don't but, either. you know, that's why I don't get paid the big bucks. I don't know. It just, you said something a minute ago that just 
kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you'd have told me uh, when I was 22 that someday DC Comics is going to publish a uh, Batman 66, I'd have told you you were fucking crazy. Are you out of your mind? How are you ever going to be able to manage whatever legal bullshit you'd have to go through in order to get the rights to do Batman 66, specifically the Adam West version? I mean, that take on the character, that universe, whatever. <clears throat> There's just no way. It'll never happen. You know, like some people tell you to never say never. I'm putting my foot down right now and saying it'll never happen. But here we are. And if you can do that, there's nothing left, you know? Uh, I, anything, anything is possible now. And to me, the best example of that is uh, the further adventures of a pre-crisis type of Superman. And again, I get that we sort of are getting that right now with Smallville, but not really. Because to me, Smallville is – season 11, the comic, is it's basically a blending together of everything that – has always been great about Superman, and it's not necessarily restricted to, to the pre-crisis era, and that's great. I don't have a beef with that. But to me, Superman is one of those characters that has so much possibility. You could publish, I don't know, 12 of these uh, digital comics, and I just – even then, you're probably just barely scratching the surface. And anyway, I'm rambling. So – I guess to kind of wrap this all up, why don't you uh, tell everybody where it is that they can find you? Well, um, on Friday nights, I'm behind the Kroger. Um, I'll be the guy with the – no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I wondered where that was going for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't talk about my drug deals on podcasts. No. Um, okay, so the New 52 Adventures of Superman is at new52superman.libsyn.com, where I am discussing the current adventures of the Man of Steel and his family of characters in the trade volumes that are being released. Uh, the Star Wars Saga Cast is at thestarwarssagacast.com, where I am talking about anything and everything Star Wars, including the new Rebels cartoon that's coming up and the books that are being published alongside that. And the um, Avengers Inspirations podcast I do with my daughter, Lily, who is yeah, 12 so years good. old. That is so good. Are you enjoying that? Yes, yes, yes. That's. I, yeah. I didn't know you were listening. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, that is uh, at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website under the Podcasts tab. So that's a lot of fun where we're just looking at all the uh, early adventures of the Avengers characters. Basically, we're using if, – if, if they appeared in the Marvel films, then we're using their – we're talking about their comics. That's our that's our, our mandate. And yeah, uh, Golden Age Superman is still there. I've been feeling kind of disconnected from that show lately, but I, I do need to put another episode out there because it's, it's – it's a, it's a project that I love, but that my reading desires have pulled me away from. Right now I'm reading a whole lot of Silver Age and a whole lot of 90s and, and trying to keep up with new comics as well. And I haven't picked up a Golden Age comic in a very long time. So um, I miss that show. I need to get back to it, but I just don't know when the time is going to happen. So anyways, uh, there are definitely over 30 episodes for you to listen to out there at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. And yeah. Somewhere in there, I eat nicely, <laughs> and well, I teach kids math. That's awesome. That's all. And look, thank you again 
uh, for uh, for joining in for this because I have to tell you, it, you have brought so much dimension to you know to to the discussion of uh, All Star Superman. You've taken things so much further than would have been possible otherwise, and so just you know, I consider you to be a friend, and so thank you for helping me out, and thank you for joining in for this celebration of Superman's uh, 76th anniversary, the most important anniversary of uh, 2014. It's just been really great having you around. It has been a pleasure. I was happy for the invite, and it's been a, it's been a joy talked about it. So yes, 76th anniversary. And, um, you know, next year will be a 77. And yeah, so who knows what may come from that. Although, I don't know. Um, that actually is, leads into something I'd want to talk to you about off the air, but for... Uh, Right now, what I just want to tell um, everybody is that we've I've got a few more entries in this uh, uh, 76th anniversary celebration of Superman coming up. And because some of this stuff is at this moment still in flux, I'm going to just kind of keep it to myself. But just want to thank all of you for listening. And so um, bye, everybody. See you next week. Thirtieth, two 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flamed, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. 
Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners 
and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.